Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Dave Hewitt. Dave gained his PA in mathematics at the University of Warwick and completed a PGCE at the University of Exeter. He started out teaching in schools around the Bristol area for 11 years, including five as head of faculty. Dave then took up a position as lecturer in mathematics education at the University of Birmingham, becoming senior lecturer in 2000. He received his doctorate from the Open University in 1994 under the supervision of none other than Professor John Mason. In 2014, Dave moved to Loughborough to start up the new Mathematics PGCE course, where he's currently based now. Now, I have wanted to get Dave on the show ever since I became aware of his work. Regular listeners to the podcast will know I absolutely adore the Practicing Mathematics book that he co-authored with former podcast guest Tom Frankham. And Dave's articles for the ATM are always thought-provoking. Now, in putting together this Research in Action series, Colin Foster scheduled Dave right in at the end as he thought we would have a lot to talk about. And as he often is, Colin was spot on. So in this wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. When is it right to tell students something and when should we let them play around and discover it for themselves? 
I'll tell you what, it is all kicking off when we answer this question, and it's one of my favourite discussions I've ever had on the show. We also talk a lot on this show, as listeners will know, about the importance of memory, retrieval and rehearsal when learning mathematics. But I get the sense I'm missing something, so I asked Dave what exactly that is. Another thing I often struggle to get my head around is the role of subordination in developing fluency, one of Dave's ideas that Tom Franken made me aware of. So I asked Dave to help me better understand what exactly he means by that. And finally, we dig deep into Dave's approach for teaching algebra and why he believes that, are you ready for this one, arithmetic is impossible without algebra. That leads to a brilliant discussion into into Dave's views on grid algebra, and he points out a resource that will soon become freely available to everybody. Now, this was the 10th interview that I did at the end of two gruelling but thoroughly enjoyable days speaking to colleagues from Loughborough University. Thankfully, Dave re-energised me because I was absolutely knackered and my head was spinning, and this really is one of my all-time favourite conversations. It's also a fitting end-of-season finale for both the Research in Action series, the fifth year of this podcast, and 2020 in general. I'll be back at the end with a few things I've been thinking about since speaking to Dave, but for now, for one last time, let's get cracking. Okay, Dave, so we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Aha, uh-huh. right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to go for 3,211,000. Right. Hold on. Let me write this down. 3,211,000. Yeah. Right. Go on. How come? Great number. Great number. <laughs> and it's a great number because, okay, it's 3211,000. And in that number, there are three zeros. Yep. There are two ones. Yep. There's one two. Yeah. One three. Yes. No fours, no fives, and no sixes. Yeah, okay. So I like it because it's a lovely self-referential number. It it refers to itself. You're gonna just help me out a little. It's been a long day here, Dave. Help, help me out. That's with, okay. With I can help you out. <laughs> so three million two hundred eleven thousand starts with a three, and yes. that three tells me how many zeros there are in the number. Okay. And yep. indeed, there are three zeros in three million two hundred eleven thousand. Yep. And then the second digit tells me how many ones there are in that number. Okay. Yeah. And yep. there are two ones. Yes. And the third digit tells me how many twos. Okay. And there's yeah. one two. And the fourth digit tells <laughs> me how many threes. Yes. There's one three. And then the last three zeros tell me that there are no fours, no fives, and no nice. sixes that appear in the number. Nice. <laughs> okay. And what I like about this is that having, if you like, got your head around what this number is about, it just opens up a sort of potential world into, is that unique? Are there other Mm. such numbers? What other numbers are there? Can I create different numbers and so on? So there's, it's got also that beauty that just one number can open up a whole world of exploration. Wow. Can you remember where you came across it, Dave? Or is is this one of your own inventions? No, it's not one of my own inventions at all. 
Um, I think that stems back to the time I was teaching in the Bristol area. And I would have got that from someone who was around within Bristol or got it from ATM or I have no idea. Lost in the mists of time. <laughs> well, that is a that is a classic. Oh, I like that. F- fantastic answer there, Dave. Um, okay, spec- second speed dating question. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Well, I've got a memory of, I, and in fact, I can even picture myself being in my parents' <laughs> front room. I was in primary school and my brother came home, who was five years older than me, and he came home to tell me about algebra. And for me, it was just really weird that there could be a letter (laughs) around. And I just thought, what is a letter doing in maths? (laughs) And it became really sort of curious to me. I was just itching to find out what is this algebra all about? And I began to really enjoy sort of algebra. But then later on, I think sort of when I I did... um, it, what was then SMP uh, further maths, and there they mm. did uh, they had groups some group theory in there as well, and I enjoyed that because things that have, had previously been processes suddenly became objects, and there was sort of a, a shift into just looking at the structure uh, of treating these processes as objects, and I quite like that shift into. Uh, that shift that took place and sort of paying attention to just structure. Um, but then when I left school, I got, I then got really interested in geometry because I think within school, I hadn't really uh, looked at geometry in terms of it being about mental imagery, being about mm. something that I could picture in my mind. And I really began to enjoy the possibility that I could just see something, I could just look at something and go, yeah, yeah, of course, (laughs) without the need to go through a whole set of lines of algebra and just put my faith in the algebra and I haven't made a mistake somewhere or something. (laughs) And I just love that. And I've always kept that joy of being able to look at something and see, see why something must be the case within a particular image. That's interesting. Fascinating. And I, just talking about algebra, I know, well, hopefully if we have time, that's something we'll be we'll be diving deep into uh, later in the conversation. Final math speed dating question for you, Dave. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Well, it may seem a bit odd, but actually possibly a music producer or songwriter. Oh, nice. um, I used to, I used to spend my time writing songs and recording them. And uh, and although I used to sometimes play with other people in a band, I was always really just interested in writing songs and recording them. And um, and I spent a couple of years uh, in London sort of um, trying to get involved in music. And thankfully to the world and their ears, <laughs> I didn't succeed. Um, but I... It was something that I used to, I got, I was really immersed in. I really enjoyed writing songs and thinking about the sort of production and mix of things. 
That's really interesting. Well, um, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm thinking on the Mr. Martin Maths podcast, we could put quite a band together of former <laughs> guests here. So you've got, you've got Johnny Griffiths, obviously, who's yeah. very, very prominent and a very, very illustrious music career. Dylan William used to be uh, in a band. Tom Sherrington used to be in a band. This is, this could, this could be yeah. big day. We could, we could go big. Has, um, has lockdown yeah. kind of reinvigorated your interest in, in producing and stuff? Well, it, come... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll come to that in a moment, but just saying about Dylan William, Dylan mm-hmm. William and I share, uh, a, we have a, a favorite keyboard player in common. We both really like. Obscure person that no one will know, but we both really <laughs> like him. Uh, Go on, give, give, us the, give us the name just so people can look it up if needed. Oh, it's Dave Stewart. But it's not the Dave Stewart in the <laughs> Eurythmics. It's a different Dave Stewart. <laughs> okay, okay, fantastic. Yeah, and um, yeah, have, have you been getting back into music during lockdown? I've been getting back into listening a bit, but not... Uh, I haven't been getting out my guitar, thankfully. <laughs> no, that's um, that's a bit in the past now. Okay, fantastic. Right, Dave. Well, um, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of an overview of your career, if that's all right. Where did it all start for you, and how did you get to where you are today? Well, I think one of for me one of the most seminal moment for me was sitting in a university lecture theatre in my second year of my mathematics degree. And, and I had, there were a number of really good lecturers that I had um, at university. But there was one where who, who just walked in through the door, never looked at us. And there were like nine different whiteboards that could be written on. And he just went, and then started, lemma 4.3, and just wrote and wrote and wrote. And... I was just frantically copying this down <laughs> and I got, I was like on board number five and he was on board number eight and I'm thinking, this is just stupid. Yeah, and yeah. I just remember slamming the pen down and just saying, this is ridiculous. This is a waste of my time. It's a waste oh, wow. of his time because I'm not understanding this. I haven't got time to understand it. I'm frantically no. just copying and and I just thought, well, yeah, that this is not the way to be doing things. So for me, it was quite seminal because it made me begin to think about well, what might be a better way of doing things then if it's not this. And so that got me beginning to be interested in, in teaching. And then sort of after university and after I had explored and failed in my music uh, exploits, <laughs> um, I got mentally bored a bit and... I remember thinking that maybe, you know, teaching might be something I'm interested in. And I looked at a few sort of prospectuses from universities. And there was this one from Exeter that said, the course is whatever the students make it. And I thought, that sounds like my sort of course. (laughs) And indeed it was. I I had an amazing year there. Uh, My tutor was someone called Dennis Crawforth who had been a tutee of someone called Caleb Gutenio, who I may mention oh, yes. a bit during the time, but Caleb Gutenio sort of set up uh, ATM uh, in the past and did a whole load of other things in education, not just mathematics, but in languages as well. And, um, and also someone called Dick Tartar was there as well at Exeter, and he has also been a very a prominent sort of influence for me and friend for me uh, for a long time. And that course, 
I remember at Christmas time going back to my parents' house and just being utterly excited because I said to them, do you realize that everything I thought about what education and teaching is about is wrong? <laughs> and and actually, I have absolutely no idea what might be right, but I just know what's wrong. <laughs> and I was really excited about the idea of then just beginning a new journey about thinking about, well, then what does make sense if everything in the past uh, that I'd thought of doesn't seem right for me anymore? And then from Exeter, I went and I taught for 11 years in around in three different schools in around Bristol. And for me, there were a number of very key people uh, there who really also influenced me. So a number of people from Exeter used to go up and sort of to Bristol and uh, start teaching there. So there were people that had been influenced by Dennis and Dick at Exeter. And they included um, particularly Joe, Joe Waddingham, who ran the Resources for Learning Development Unit there. And um, she just got groups of teachers working together at developing materials that then would be available for other teachers. And um, someone who came up uh, from Exeter with me, Pat Evans, now Pat Morton, was significant. But also Lorinda Brown in particular was somebody that I sort of just, we spent a long, long, long time talking together about our classrooms, what we were doing and so on. And so that sort of climate around Bristol was a really important one for me. Um, and then ATM has been really significant for me, Social Teaching Teacher Mathematics. I've had a long involvement with ATM and I would like never miss ATM conferences. They would be, you know, really big, uh, significant conference for me to sort of just continue topping up and developing my thoughts and ideas and so on. And then I began to get into uh, research a bit. Uh, that was with a group that was run by someone called Daphne Kerslake around Bristol. And then I also began a PhD at the Open University. And so the group at Open University also became really significant. John Mason, David Pym, Christine Shu, Barbara Jaworski were there amongst others. And they were very significant for me. And then I began to do a sort of a bit of a shift from focusing on my own teaching. Um, when I became a head of department, it was also working with a department and thinking about the whole school and the sort of experiences that all the students were getting in the school. We talked uh, uh, in that school, we talked mixed attainment throughout all years. And, um, and then uh, move, I then got a job at Birmingham University teacher training. And so that made a shift into actually working with, you know, beginning teachers to try and perhaps influence them uh, so that, again, there were perhaps more schools that got uh, affected a little bit by the ways in which they were learning mathematics. And then I made the move to Loughborough uh, for two reasons. One, because it's such a strong research community mm. at Loughborough and it's been a joy coming into that environment. Uh, but also the, the, was, um, I came to set up a brand new teacher training course for mathematics at Loughborough. And it was exciting to uh, just have a clean slate 
and start from scratch and just thinking about, right, what would what would I really want to have within a teacher training course? And that was really exciting. Well, I'll tell you what, Dave, that is quite the CV. And what I like about that is, is yeah, the, the, the name checks of all the people who've, who've, who've influenced you um, along the way there. And I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But just before we, we dive into that, um, I always ask my guests to pick out a, a favourite failure. Now, this could be a moment from your classroom experience. It could be from your, your research, your teacher training, whatever you want. But I'm, I'm looking for something that didn't quite go according to plan and crucially what you learned from the experience. Right. Well, one of many, many options, really. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about teaching is that um, if, you, if you're going to develop your teaching, you've got to be trying some new things out. Mm. And sometimes they just aren't going to go well at all. And it's that bit, isn't it, about learning from them. And, mm. um, and then that's the way you just continually develop and improve your teaching. So, but one in particular, I suppose, always stays in my head. I, I've, um, on a number of occasions, I've, I've given some uh, lessons where there's been a number of teachers that have sat around and watched mm. as well. And they've been done not because it's like um, way, you know, hey, you're going to see an amazing lesson here. <laughs> it's done simply because I'm prepared to be a sort of... Um, uh, in the in the goldfish bowl, and yes. and I don't mind people watching a lesson, um, and they're going to see whatever they're going to see. It may go well, may not go well, whatever. But I used to do these maybe because I used to work with children, maybe in a slightly different way to what was perhaps common, and and so it often provoked quite a bit of discussion afterwards mm. and so on. Anyway, one of these lessons, I was teaching a group of children that I hadn't actually ever taught before. In fact. And, and I'd set them off on a task and I was quite sure that I had been really clear about the task that I asked them to do. They all seemed to be really happy and they were all working away in the task and they were working in different groups. And I went round to each table and every single table was doing a different task to every <laughs> other table. <laughs> and absolutely none of them were doing the tasks I'd actually wanted them to do. <laughs> and I just thought, what in the earth do I do about this? And and it was, um, and actually, I'm not too sure really what I did do about it. I think I just had to let them do what they were doing. Mm. And then when they reported back upon what they were doing, I then tried to make connections between those yes. and, uh, and then you know, hopefully go off in a direction that had something to do with um, what I thought would be useful and helpful. Um, but, the, but the big thing I learned from that is that is that you can't, um, you know, what, when is a, an explanation ever a clear explanation? Mm. So for me, I felt that as if I'd said it really clearly and the actual students seemed to feel as if it was clear for them because yes. they 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 were quite sure yeah yeah we know what to do <laughs> and it's that bit about communication is is such a complex uh uh phenomena it's it really you just cannot open up people's heads and just put things inside their head it's a very complex interaction that happens so i think one of the things i learned is that um 
no matter how clear I might think I am or how much people might say, oh, yeah, I understand. Actually, I have to watch or listen to, to what actually are they doing? What actually are they saying? And, and I have to spend time to make sure that I'm finding out really what they are thinking and what they're doing. So for me, it's about really having to learn carefully about what my students are actually doing and thinking. That, that's interesting. It's it's fascinating that they weren't confused. They were they were really sure no, they'd understood it's you. Weird. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> I like that. I like that. that's a great example. Uh, right, Dave. So let, let, let's dive into this now. Now, I've I've, I've wanted to get you on the show uh, for for a long time now, and and Tom Frankham's always urging urging me, saying, "Well, when's Dave coming on? When's Dave coming on?" And I'm, now now I've got the opportunity. It's it's then really hard to think how how to structure this, what what to talk about, how to try and draw out the best. So we're going to go a bit kind of a little bit freestyle. I've got a few key questions, a few key points that I want to get to, but I also want to give you a bit a bit of free reign. So. I've, I've labeled this section just teaching mathematics. And the first question I wanted to ask you just to see where it takes us is um, when is it right to tell students something and when should we let them play around and discover it for themselves? Oh, ah, right. Okay. Okay. So Craig, I'm going to ask you a question in return. Oh. <laughs> uh, with that one. So don't worry. It's not a tricky question. Go on. Right. Just Craig, what is my name? Uh, Dave Hewitt. Now, how do you know that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know it because I've, I've read lots of your stuff and I've, I've, I've met you and been introduced to you uh, with that name. And also I, I can see it on me on my screen here in the, in the recording software. Okay. But I could be, I could be lying. <laughs> you could. Yeah. I can't see you. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's well, very true as well. The, the thing about this, I'll maybe ask another question as well. Okay. And that is... Do you know what the capital of Brazil is? And, I, and it's fine for you to say, I don't know. Uh, yes, I, I think I do. Yes. <laughs> On the spot. Uh, Brasilia? It is Brasilia. Absolutely. Phew, phew. But of course, before about round about, I think it was around about 1960, it wasn't Brasilia. It was Rio de Janeiro. Mm. Now, why I'm asking these questions is because how do we ever know that these things are true? And we only ever know they're true essentially because someone told us yes, or yes. we looked them up somewhere um, because there's no way I would know what the capital of Brazil is unless I just found out somewhere and someone mm -hmm. told me. I couldn't sit down and say, mm, that's a good problem. Let me work on that one. See <laughs> whether I can work out what the capital of Brazil must be. Um, so there are some things where you, you just have to be told these things. And, um, and that's true in mathematics as well. So, you know, what's the name of a square? Well, I won't ask it like that. What's the name of a shape that has got four sides, right angles everywhere, and all the sides the same length? Then, you know, it's square. But of course, mm. if I'm in France, it's not square. Mm. It's a different name. If I'm in Italy, it's a different name. So if I want to know the name of things uh, within mathematics, someone has to tell me or I have to look it up. It's not something I can invent a name. Sure, I can always invent mm -hmm. a name. But if we're going to be able to communicate with a wider mathematics community, then in the end, someone has to tell me what their name is. Yes, yes. So 
that's something that needs to be as a teacher i need to inform someone about names of things so that's okay so that's number one of things i have to inform but also there are things like how many degrees are there in a circle hmm. well actually why are there 360 you know is there something about a circle when i look at it that makes me say well, of course, there's got to be 360. <laughs> what else could there have been? <laughs> you know, because after all, it can also be 2 pi, of course, depending upon what the units are. So this is just, a, if you like, a social convention. We've decided we're adopting mm. degrees and there are historical reasons why it was 360 based, more than likely about the Babylonians and their working in base 60 and so on. So there are historical reasons why that's the case. But for someone in my classroom, um, you know, they're never going to be able to work out how many degrees yes. there are in a, in a whole turn. So, so therefore, that's something else I'm going to tell people as well. So there are essentially, it's either names or conventions, things that have been socially agreed. They definitely do need to be told. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you so far. Now, those things I describe as being arbitrary. They're arbitrary in the sense that they could have been something else. Yes. Now, there might be reasons why the decision made is a very sensible reason. So, in a sense, the reason may not be, in a sense, arbitrary, mm. in the sense that there may be good reasons why the choice was what it was. But for a learner, you know, there's not necessarily a reason why that had to be, well, there's no reason why it had to be how it is. And so the word arbitrary for me just gives that sense of the fact that it is a social decision and it could have been something different. It didn't have yes. to be that one at all. So these things I called arbitrary. They're names and conventions. Hmm. And the only way in which someone's going to be informed is by a teacher telling them those things and so a teacher's job here is about assisting memory and about helping them retain that helping them memorize yes. these things however there's in mathematics there's a whole mass of things that are not <laughs> that <laughs> so two plus three is five and it jolly well isn't four and it is five. And there are reasons why I could justify why it must be five, as long mm. as we're working in a base 10 system and so on. But it has to be five. The angles inside a, a triangle in Euclidean geometry, it's got to be 180 degrees. Mm. It can't yes. be something else. That's not just a choice. It's not a social convention. It absolutely has to be 180 degrees. It has to be half a turn. Now, these are things that are quite different in their nature. They can be, if you like, justified and proved why they mm. must be the case and it couldn't be something different. So these I call necessary. They're necessary. Okay. They have to be the case. So these are things that some students can, actually they can work these things out given maybe appropriate activities, a line of questioning or something like this, they, they could get to a position where they say, it's got to be 180 and I can see why it must be 180 degrees. Mm. And 
And so therefore, for me, this is a potentially a different, a different job for a teacher to be doing. This for me, I say is in the realm of awareness rather than memory. And we, we may get into discussing the differences between these two, uh, but these things are, I can become aware of myself through my own thinking rather than someone having to tell me it. So for me, a teacher's role in this area of, the, of things that are necessary is to actually provide activities, use questioning to try to educate students' awareness so that they can become aware of these things for themselves, of things that must be the case and see why they must be the case. Can I, um, the, there'll be numerous points where I'll apologise in advance, Dave, that, that, I'll, that I'll interrupt you just because I kind of thought will come into my head. Um, and I'll also, at various points, kind of play a bit of the role of devil's advocate, but also... <laughs> Kind of play also the the thoughts I've had myself because again just to give listeners a bit of my my background here I, I the first twelve years of my teaching career I didn't think about too much at all really I just taught I was very happy kids seemed to ha be happy enough every everyone was fine and then I started speaking to people on my podcast and my whole world fell apart because I started reading research that I'd never read before, reading books that I'd never read before, speaking to people. And I began questioning absolutely everything. And and that was kind of my mid-career crisis. And I'm still very much in the midst of it where I, I don't have a flipping clue what's going on, Dave, half the time. I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I've sorted something out. Then I speak to somebody else Join who tells me something. <laughs> who uh, starts me thinking about something different. So my first kind of devil's advocate question here is, and I don't mean this to sound obtuse at all, but but where's the argument against the teacher also telling the student the necessary? And I'm thinking here in terms of opportunity cost, in terms of time. Well, where's the argument against me saying angles in a triangle, uh, interior angles in a triangle add up to 180 degrees. Now let's do some practice on it. Now let's do some problem solving as opposed to the, the lengthier and potentially more problematic activity of, of discovery or how inquiry, how whatever we want to call it, where some students might not get there and it might be a frustrating experience and some students may get there quicker and so on. Where's the argument against the teacher telling the students the necessary? Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to work out where I begin with that one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, so it's because I can come at that in a number of Okay. A number of ways. I, I'm going to start off with one way in that there's a real danger in looking at things um, rather straightforwardly into saying that, crikey, I could just tell them. And look, that mm. took me, that took, what, 10 seconds? Yes. Uh, so therefore, why in the earth will we be wasting lots of time Ooh. on this? The thing is, what's achieved within that 10 seconds? Well, they've listened to you say some things. Um, now, what they do with that is really quite another matter. And I come back to my example about what is a clear explanation. So, you, yes. so as a teacher, I might feel as if I've really explained the angles inside a triangle nice and clearly. But actually, I don't really know what they've made of it. Yes. Um, so they've, in a sense, got to do, uh, I'm going to use the word, I don't really mean this word, by the way, but I'm going to use this word translation. They've got to do a bit of a translation into mm. making sense of it themselves. Yeah. And um, 
And I don't know, some would do that well, some would not do that so well. And um, so they're going to end up, some will end up with a slight misunderstanding of what you said. And so they haven't got the thinking quite as you meant it, just like in my example with that sort of demonstration lesson I talked about. Um, so if you like, knowledge is not so simply transferred at all. And even if they do, in a sense, get a good sense of what you just said, um, how long is that going to stay around for? Um, it's just going to be something else that they have to remember, is it? And they might remember it. But one of the great things about memory is that along with it comes forgetting. Yes. So, yeah, they might remember it. in that lesson. They might answer questions really well. But actually, how long are they going to remember this for? Because particularly if it's something which um, just feels like, if you like, an arbitrary piece of information, mm. just like what is the capital of Brazil? Uh, I have to try and remember it's Brasilia. And yet, uh, and so mathematics, mathematics doesn't work if it's just me collecting a load of different isolated bits of information that I've got to try and remember in some way. So, I, so that's I, one that angle I've got to it. I've got other angles, but go on, okay. carry on. <laughs> yeah, we, we could we could be stuck on this angle for a while, Dave, because I, I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, I guess a, a couple of responses um, to to this, like, how do we know if students do become aware of it themselves that they're less likely to forget it? If if that makes sense, do because it feels intuitive, like it, that should be the case. If I, again, for want of a better word, if I discover myself or if I become aware that angles in a triangle add up to 180, it feels like intuitively that should lodge far more than if the teacher just tells me. But I'm thinking here of two scenarios. I've got that scenario versus not just the teacher tells me once, but then I practice then the teacher does some form of formative assessment or something, and then we practice retrieving it over different periods of time going forward. Like, how do I know the former there, that this, this being made aware, how do I know it's that that sticks more than the being told and the practice? Okay, so I think, firstly, there are two things I need to say before I begin to reply. One is that mm. I'm all for practice. Don't think I'm not. Sure. I'm all for practice. So practice is important, and we make it on to talking about the nature of that practice. Mm -hmm. uh, but practice is really, really important. So I'm not taking away any of that. And um, and I, and the other thing that I think's important is that um, actually, if I find, if I work, oh, sorry, the second little thing. Yeah, I remember what it is now. Second little thing I want to say before I, I go <laughs> on. And that is that, um, you know, it's not as if I really am not someone for just leaving kids to it sure. and them sort of discovering things on their own. It's sure. about working with, because often the discuss, sometimes discussion in mass education goes from one Yes. Extreme to the other. So if it's just yes. a dichotomy and it's not, there's a whole spectrum of ways in which you might mm. work with students. So I'm I'm certainly not in the direct instruction side and I'm not in the sort of pure discovery side. Yes. I'm about working with students in 
hopefully reasonably well thought out ways where there's very careful um, uh, roles played by a teacher to uh, direct attention, to sometimes act a bit as I sometimes act as I have a phrase saying teacher as educator, uh, sorry, teacher as amplifier, teacher as editor, sometimes mm. editing out things that certain people say, amplifying other things, which, yes. which are all about essentially drawing attention to certain things that might be significant, which, which become the material. I use the word material, the material for that students then are aware of and 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 work with in order to see whether they can find connections between things so so teaching is a very for me a very active process and not mm. where, one where i'm sitting back just leaving them to it yeah, of course of so course. anyway having said all those little caveats um there's something there there are there are two things that really happen when people are trying to notice and make connections themselves find connections, make conjectures, test those out. They are working as a mathematician as well as just mm -hmm. collecting, if you like, items within a mathematics curriculum. They are developing their ability to work as a mathematician, which will pay off within all areas of mathematics, not just this knowing the angles inside a triangle, for example. So. So if actually we're working with students in a way where they are being really active um, mathematicians in the way in which they're engaging with activities, then the payoff is not just the fact that they perhaps get a real clear insight into a particular property that's significant, like the angles inside mm. a triangle, maybe where the quality of that is just far greater than me listening to you telling me. So I have a bit of a, a more qualitative experience that's also maybe has an affective side as well as, if you like, a, a cognitive side. Mm. Um, but also I'm just developing myself in terms of other awarenesses I might have along the way of searching this, which gives me more insights into triangles, angles, parallel lines, whatever it might be that's involved in me thinking about and in engaging in a particular activity. So for me, there's a big payoff in a wider sense, as well as an increased, for me, an increased probability, and it always is a probability, sure. that that is something that is going to stay with me because I've had a more, if you like, intimate uh, connection with that because it's something I've noticed I can see, I get almost like I get an insight into something rather than just something that I'm going to have to remember that you told me. This is this fascinating, this, Dave. Um, would, would you agree? I'm not, I'm not sure I agree, but <laughs> would, you agree that, would you agree that um, there's potential for more things to go wrong with that approach? And by go, by, by go wrong... I mean, obviously, we've got we've got the time factor, and I th I th I'm going to put the time factor to one side. Although I, I feel it's important, I I I think it was Dylan Willing who first first said to me that every decision a teacher makes has an opportunity cost because it's time that could be spent doing something else. So we're, I'm always really conscious about time these days, thinking what's the best use of time, and I've got to think if this activity is going to take 30 minutes. 
I've got to make sure there isn't something that's more valuable for the students to be doing within those 30 minutes. But I'm, I'll just put the issue to, to, to time for one to one side. Would you agree that there's potential for, for more either confusion or students to go off on slightly different paths, arguably potentially paths that aren't that useful when they're doing these these activities versus what we'll label potentially as, as, as direct instruction. And I know obviously things can go wrong in the translation um, from, from a teacher just explaining something. But again, I go back to the thing that as long as we have formative assessment strategies in there, we have practice in there and retrieval opportunities, I think there's 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 less likely that that things are going to go wrong. We can certainly pick up on any any problems that that occur. I'm just thinking whenever you, you say things like um, which which I completely agree that the teacher's role is to edit and amplify. Well, doesn't that doesn't that suggest that a, a more efficient thing to do would be for the because the, the teacher wouldn't need to do the editing and amplifying if the teacher does the explaining. Do, do, does that make sense at, at all? Well. Perhaps we have to come back to time a little bit and about okay. efficiency. Um, I mean, something, so a, a key uh, issue for me, which is a bit, was the focus of my PhD, was the notion of economic use of, of mm. time and effort yes. in teaching. So that, the issue about time is crucial for me. Yes, um, yes. And, and so I want people to get a lot from a little. And that's yes. Uh, yes. a little in terms of time, but also little in terms of effort as well. Now, there is a real danger, though, that you think you've made good use of time. <laughs> yes. But, uh, and you do various assessment strategies and so on, blah, 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 which, of course, would be around within my model as well, that there would mm. be, there would be, you know, plenty of also assessment, assessment for learning going on as well. Um, but what you just find is that, and this has just been around so much, is that a certain amount of time later, kids have just forgotten these things. And, it, and there's a danger that in the end, there's, um, if you like, a, a force um, sunrise that happens during one lesson where you think, yeah, yeah, yes, they can really yes. do this. I can really get this. But because it's not really deep within them, they then, then in fact, you're just going to have to redo that again some other time. Whereas I'm interested in trying to get some sort of um, some sort of depth of that relationship between the students and the mathematics, where that is less likely to happen. And in and it's always again about probabilities. Okay, mm. we never know. Um, but um, so I think it, I think for someone to really know something is what's really important. And I'm not sure you get that at all by just feeling like you've got one efficient lesson where you've dealt with something really quickly. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and the other thing to, to say, Dave, if, if I haven't made this clear, is I, I, I want it, I really want it to be true that it, the best way to do things um, potentially if it, to use the arbitrary necessary dis distinction is for students to whether we call it sense make or whatever of of the of the necessary i want that to be the thing that's that's deep rooted it's just that I, i'd always i'd always assumed that was the case and then whenever i had my kind of mid-career crisis and i started reading all the literature on you know the testing effect and the the importance of retrieval and so on 
I started to think to myself, well, where, I can't just trust my intuitions because my intuitions have been wrong on so many other things. So, so how do I know that if I provide this activity where my students, you know, by the end of it, have, have come to the conclusion themselves with, with, my, with my kind of guidance and with the activity I've laid on, that actually whatever it is, angles in a triangle add to 180 or whatever it is, how, do, how, how can I honestly say that, that they're going to remember that better going forward than if we'd have done it a different way, whether that be direct instruction or what? Do, are, are, you, are, are, you, are you so convinced that, that, that this is the case? And, and yeah, how can I convince myself, Dave, if, if, if I can't think of a better way to say it? Well, I, um, you know, I, I can only speak for myself. Sure. and my own experience in the classroom and um, throughout the time that I was teaching all my classes got at least uh, as good exam results as expected mm. if not a lot better than was sure. was expected um, and I think if I if someone were to try and teach um, in a way that doesn't feel right for them I suspect the kids aren't necessarily going to get a good deal Yes. I th- above anything, everything else, I think someone must be teaching in a way where they've they've really got um, they really believe in the way that they're, they're trying to teach. Yes. Because I think that uh, the kids will get a better get a better experience that way. I think. I remember observing once a teacher who. Um, uh, this was before social distancing was the norm <laughs> or whatever, but he used to arrange his students in the class where they were sitting in single desks in a perfect array in the room and separated from one another. And and he explained things to them, told them about the mass. They a lot of direct teaching going on and I remember observing this thinking oh my goodness me oh dear Um, (laughs) I remember having this reaction and the kids would never say a word unless a teacher you know told them they could they worked in complete silence in isolation whatever and then towards about halfway through the lesson he got uh, two of them to come up and write they're working on a question up on the board. Mm. A bit like sometimes, you know, it's commonplace in Japan and in Shanghai where there are different methods put up on the board. And he then spent the second half of the lesson sort of asking them questions a lot about pros and cons, about Mm. different approaches. What has this person done here? Why is that a good idea? And a lot of time and attention was spent to the to the sort of mathematics that was involved in these methods justifying them and so on so at the end of that lesson i said to myself there's no way i would teach like that but you know what i think the kids are getting a good deal here and i think they're really getting a good uh you know real good understanding of some of the mathematics around so i'm not a great person to say you know, things should be done this way. Mm. And if you, Craig, or you, anyone else who's listening, are convinced about the way in which you're teaching, then more than likely the kids are getting going to get a better deal than if you try to make yourself doing to work in a way which you're which doesn't feel right for you, which doesn't sit out being okay. 
So I can only talk about things that have sat okay for me and that it's not just that, but it, but the kids in front of me seem to have learned quite a lot of mathematics as well and oh, being awesome. successful within their exams and whatever. Absolutely. And I see it these days as, as, as one of my, my key things I like to do, particularly on the podcast, is is, is invite guests on who I know will have slightly different views or completely different views and so on and, and, and have these discussions. Because again, it, it makes my head hurt, but it's in, in, a, in a really useful way. Um, I, I don't want to kind of uh, take us away from what we're talking about. Um, so I wondered, you mentioned that you had a couple of different angles that you wanted to tackle my question about um, should teachers uh, just teach, just tell students the necessary. Was there anything else you wanted to say on that before I just steer us away slightly? Yeah, if that's okay. Um, of course. So, Craig, I just want you to remember, and anyone else who's listening, um, I just want you to remember the word Pimolitel. And, um, <laughs> and I've done this many times with many groups of teachers. And I don't know, for example, whether you've already forgotten the word that I said. Yeah, uh, I'm struggling already. I've got it starting with a P, but that's about it. Okay. So, you know, it's it's interesting that even if you're you're going to try and remember that word, you might have to catch really the the effort that you're having to make to try and remember that word. Yes. You're going to have to repeat it to yourself again yeah, and again. Yep. You're going to think, well, can I link it to something? It began with a P. Okay, so what yep. what what? And there's a lot of work you have to do to try and remember that word. Yes. Now. When I've done this, as I've done this many, many times, I've then gone on to talk about all sorts of other things. And and then later, I ask them to write down that word. Mm. And it, usually it's about, I don't know, if about 50% maybe mm. have got that. And for me, this is an example of just how costly memory is to try and remember something actually is a big cost and actually it's not a great payoff for the cost. So if I'm actually, instead of actually, if in my words, educating awareness, if I'm mm -hmm. actually telling someone something that's in my necessary category, yes, then I use that, I use the phrase that they're getting received wisdom from mm, someone. Yes. Yes. And when they receive this wisdom, since they haven't got a personal connection with this because they don't actually, they're just trusting that what their teacher said is true. Um, in the end, they have to memorize it rather than it being something they become aware of. In, and it's costly to keep memorizing these isolated bits of things, no matter how much practice I do and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it's actually very costly in terms of practice to begin to, to hold it. There's um, an Argentinian writer who's now dead called Borges. And Borges wrote a lot of short stories that I've, I just love, love his writing. And one of them, there was a character in there who decided to give a name for every number. So a number <laughs> like 7,013 was given the name Maximo Perez. And the number <laughs> 7,014 was given the name The Train. And 
And could you imagine what that is like to try and remember all the number names? I mean, it would be an enormous task. <laughs> so, and yet, um, if I were to say, you know, 7,013, what can you tell me about the number 7,013? Um, it's, it's, it's in four digits. It's uh, in the thousands. It's an odd number. I don't know if it's prime or not. Maybe it is. So actually, there's quite a lot of things we could say about that number. Mm. But the only reason in which we can say things about number is because we have, uh, if you like, an underlying structure that sort of uh, is behind our numbers. And we are, if you like, aware of that structure so that a number like 7013 that I'm going to predict you have never, ever said before in your life or never <laughs> okay. even seen before in your life, potentially. Yes. Yes. And yet you will know a lot of things about that number. Now, that's because of awarenesses you have about the number system and so on. It's not because you've remembered something about 7,013. I, I agree. Um, there's a butt coming up here, Craig, isn't there? There's a butt <laughs> coming up here. There's, there's not. It's just, it's, it's just questions today. It's questions. And I, I find this fascinating. Could it be the case that that awareness could come later? So, so let, let, me, let me give you a, just a daft example off the top of my head here. But it, it's, a, it's an often cited one. I, I, think, I, I think your point is perfectly valid when it comes to trying to remember, remember facts. And I, I, I completely, completely agree with that. Kind of loads of arbitrary, disconnected facts. It's going to be an absolute nightmare, very costly, costly to remember. But if we take, take something like procedures in, in mathematics, and again, one that's often wheeled out, but I think it's quite a useful one. But, but please tell me if I'm wrong, is something like, like dividing fractions. Now, something like that, I, I personally have found, and again, it's a, it's a very personal experience. I've tried it lots of different ways. I've tried trying to explain to students why the procedure works first um, and then practice and so on. But I haven't found that to be particularly effective. Well, the, the order I've, I, I tend to do things these days is explain the procedure, normally with a, with a, with a worked example, the students practice, and then the awareness of what we're actually doing comes later at the point when students are feeling really confident with this procedure. They've tasted a bit of success, okay, in terms of getting a few questions right or so on. But then I can say to them, you know this thing that we've been practicing for a bit and you know the thing that you're feeling pretty good at now? Well, now let's dive into why this works. I found that that awareness, to, to use your labeling of it, sometimes it, it works better if that comes a little bit later down, down the process of, of introducing students to, an, to, a, to a procedure, a method, or an idea. Would that have any validity in your way of seeing things, Dave? Um, I think, um, so the answer is yes and no, uh, of course. Um, <laughs> the... To me, what's important is is about Catenio's got this phrase about only as awareness is educable, and I could talk a lot about that little phrase for a long time. Could you say it to me one more time, Dave? Only is awareness is educable. Okay, okay, I like it. Um, now, what's important to me is that students' awareness gets educated. In, in that they become aware of things, they have insights into things, and they can say, oh, yeah, 
about something. Mm. Now, actually, can it come later? Yeah, sure. It can come later. There's, and it, what's important is that it happens. Yes, of course. Now, the trouble is, is that, call me cynical or what, but <laughs> um, a number of people that say, yes, but I'll do that later. Do you know what? They never quite get around to it. Mm. And actually, that's the important bit. That's the thing that is really important. And, you know, there'll be arguments like, oh, but there's not enough time. There's not enough time yes. and all this stuff, blah, yes. blah, 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 which I, uh, well, I can talk about that at one point, but I, I don't go <laughs> along with that. I think there's bundles of time. We have, in secondary school, we have five years yes. with them, for heaven's sake. That's massive amount of time. I agree. Um, but yes, it can come later, and that's fine. But the other but about that is that you've... Um, it's not about you just explaining why either, because again, that ends up being received wisdom. <laughs> of course, yes. Uh, so it's about, can you work with someone in a way where they can end up feeling that experience themselves of going, oh, mm. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. I can see this. And not just, um, well, okay, yeah, okay, I believe you. No, I I completely agree, and I think it's. I mean, I, I get a lot of criticism, Dave, for, for for numerous things, but but one thing I get criticism for is is exactly that 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 oh yeah, and I re I think it's a lovely way of, of of putting it, that that oh yeah never comes, but that 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 for me is the that that's the reason I teach mathematics to give students Absolutely. those moments to help students because otherwise what well, what the hell are we wasting our time you know doing, but. I've just my my kind of mini experimentations over the years have led me to to reach the conclusion that for, that quite a lot not all the time but quite a large proportion of the time I think I'm more likely to get one of those oh yeah moments just by tweaking the order I do things and you're absolutely right there is a danger that if you obviously you if you don't revisit the why or you know whatever we call it then kids are never going to have that and it's just right we we're told something we practice it then we move on to something else and that is an absolute waste of time but I think the flip side's also true Dave that sometimes if we start by trying to whether we call it explain the why or give this away, help students become aware, whatever whatever we call it. And we do that at the start, perhaps when students either aren't, don't have that confidence or perhaps don't have um, prerequisite knowledge, then actually we don't get the oh yeah at all that way either. And, and in fact, we get the worst of both worlds that we haven't had that oh yeah moment. And in fact, actually, students then when they come into being in, be learning the procedure or the method or the idea or whatever follows on from from that actually we're, we're, we're fighting a losing battle because they've already decided that this thing's a bit of a nightmare i don't have a clue what's going on now that might be again i've experienced this and that might be my failings as a teacher and i'm sure it is it might also be my poor choice of either explanation or task or activity and so on but i think that's a fairly common experience that actually the the oh yeah if we try and get it at the start and it doesn't come i think that can possibly set up quite a difficult few lessons following on from that would would you have would you agree with that at all uh no <laughs> there's more of a no than yes no there <laughs> i tell you i tell you why because you're you're talking as if there is just a single it yes yeah okay, okay? That's and fair. there is yeah, that's not fair. That's fair. Now, can i actually let me try and relate this about dividing fractions because okay. recently I was lucky enough to go to a couple of countries and see 
the way uh, in which they're sort of training their maths teachers and I was learning yes. from them and so on. And I, one time I went to, uh, one of my visits was to, to University of Helsinki and I was with um, uh, Heidi Schwatsky there and she teaches mainly uh, primary school teachers and she showed me some resources that, that they were using. And one of the resources were, were fraction cakes where they are essentially sectors of circles that are plastic sectors, sectors of circles of different sort of um, angles so yeah. that you get different fractions of the circle. And and for me, uh, here I'm, I'm owning up to feeling really embarrassed about this because I got um, an insight into dividing fractions that throughout all my teaching experiences I've never had before. Wow. And many people will say to me, Dave, that's flipping obvious. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was a real bing light bulb moment. So I take, um, we were looking at um, a half divided by two thirds. Okay. And, and so we had um, a fraction cake of two thirds. And I put yeah. on top of it, inside, if you like, uh, the fraction cake for half. Okay. And I suddenly went, oh, yeah, of course. It's three quarters. And I'm, I'm, struggling, to pitch, I'm struggling to picture it, Dave. Oh, dear. Right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, no. I've, I've, got me, I've got me pen and paper ready here. Okay, so what I've got is, um, so imagine you've got a circle. Yeah, got it. And you've got um, two thirds of that circle highlighted. Yes, got it, yep. And that ends up, if you like, being, I'm calling that a fraction cake. It's a part of a circle uh, yes. that's two thirds of the whole circle. Yes. And you've got another separate, if you like, bit of plastic that is a, another fraction cake that is half yes. of the circle. Yes. And what you do is imagine laying that half of the circle in the two thirds of the circle one so that they are sort of lined up one of the radii sort of thing lined up yes. with the other one. Yes, I can see that. Yes. And I suddenly realized that what I have to do is to stop thinking of the circle as the unit. And I had to start realizing that it was the two thirds that was my unit now. And the issue is, is how much of the two thirds is a half? And I could yes. see within those two that it was three quarters. Yes, and, and, yes, I see it. And, I got it. Yes. And so what happened for me was a sudden awareness that that what I have to do when I'm dividing fractions is to change the unit from the original circle into essentially the second fraction. That becomes yes. my new one. And so I realized that I have to change that. That's my unit is out of how many of those out of how out of that two thirds, how much of that two thirds is the half? Yes. 
Yes. And I realized that it's the two thirds that has to become my unit. It has to become my one. And so I realized that that tells me about the algorithm as well. I have to turn that second fraction into a one. Mm -hmm. And the way in which I do it is to multiply by the reciprocal. <laughs> and that awareness for me of changing that second fraction into the one, I could see within these that practical material. And do you, do you think, oh, sorry. Dave, so sorry. Uh, what, what I'm reporting here is whether you're, or not you think it's a good teaching approach, I'm giving you an example of something that, was a new awareness for me. Yes. And it's from and and that awareness has changed me and changed the way in which I now look at dividing fractions together and what fractions are about. It gives me more loads of insight into fractions and what I do with division that goes way beyond just the how do you do it? How do you get the answer? So that awareness is, um, is, is that sort of experience I'm after uh, students to get, where they have, you don't just get a payoff in terms of being able to do it, but you have a real insight into something that's wider than just the particular thing that you want them to get to know. It gives you a whole um, awareness about division, about fractions and so on. I think that's absolutely. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I I absolutely love it. It's given me a new awareness now. It's given me an oh yeah moment. I just wonder whether it's it was so profound for you and and potentially now so profound for me because of our experience in the past, because of how many times we've divided fractions, because of how many times we've used the algorithm. Like we now think, ah, I can see that's why the algorithm works. It's an impossible question to answer, Dave, but imagine if you'd had no experience of dividing fractions. Would that have perhaps overcomplicated things before before you got into it? Do, do you know what I mean? Is, yep. is that actually a classic example of where the awareness comes later after practice? Right. Okay. So to start with, students are not empty vessels. Of course. They always have experiences. Of and so therefore, um, for me, working with students in a classroom, I want to work with the awarenesses that they do have. Yes. And so therefore there isn't this stuff about, oh, they never get it because I'm working with the experiences that they do have and they do get yeah. and they do. And so my, my job as a teacher is about molding these things that they are aware of, educating their awareness and maybe slight directions, slight uh, drawing attention to certain aspects of what they do tell me, then can begin to move them into them being able to say, oh, yes, about things that relate to dividing fractions as well. So there, I don't think there is this uh, almost like cliff edge thing about some get it and some don't, because for me, there isn't an it, because it's about developing and growing the awarenesses they have about things to do with fractions i i completely agree I'm, I'm just wondering thinking about this 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 um visualization or or way of way of seeing division of fractions in particular now, now you're now you're aware of this dave now, now you've encountered this 
Um, and you, you were teaching, well, let's say, let, let's just think practically, year seven students, and all of a sudden on the schema work, here comes division of fractions. And we, and we know students have experience of fractions from primary school. We know that some of them may have even tried to divide fractions and so on. They've got this whole whole different spectrum of, of experiences that they've had. Are you now thinking you'd start with, with something like this? Would this be... Your introduction with them, the first time you've worked with them on, on this particular idea, would, would this be your way in with, with them now? Well, as a teacher, when I get excited about something like that, <laughs> I think it's great to to take that energy um, into the classroom and think, oh, maybe there's you know a way in which I can now work on fractions that's different to how I've done before. Yes, yes. And I think it's fantastic to bring that energy because within teaching, it is about also how you are as a teacher, as well as anything else. Are you bringing love and enthusiasm Mm. of mathematics into your classroom and into the way in which you're teaching? So, um, So if I had a group of kids in front of me and I'm going to teach dividing fractions, I suspect I would spend quite a bit of time thinking about how am I going to work with them in a way where they may gain an insight into the issue about what what is the unit within these yes, things. Yes, yes. And um, because there's always, I mean, some people will argue fractions always have uh, the word of after them. So they're always a half of what? Yes. And so there's always a, a, a unit that's hidden there behind. So I might be really excited about doing that. And the lesson will, will go however it goes. <laughs> and, but what I find is that in the end, if you like, I do have certain lessons that almost like now I know that they're really going to work. There's a high probability they're going to work really well. But mm-hmm. the only way in which they exist is because I take something like this enthusiasm into the classroom. I try something out. In the end, there's certain parts of it that, that will work okay. And there's certain parts of it where yes. I think, oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. That's an issue or that's a key awareness that I realize that I might need to work on first. So what I do is I go back, I craft that a little bit more and I go in with another class and I try this again with a slight modification. And I do this again, 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 until in the end, maybe I've crafted a lesson that I think has a very high probability Mm. of getting kids somewhere actually really quite profound and quite quickly. So I am interested in in them learning a lot quickly. And, And I, you know, I think now I've got a number of you know, a certain range of lessons within my repertoire where where maybe um, people might be quite surprised at how quickly children can really get a sense of something um, that, that people might be really surprised at how they could get there so quickly. That's, that's fascinating, this, Dave. Um, I want to I want us to talk about um, 
practice and fluency um, in a moment. I just wanted to ask you just one more thing um, about something you mentioned earlier on when you were talking about this distinction between um, arbitrary and, and necessary. And you mentioned that, that are the arbitrary things students need to be taught and the role of the teacher there is as well as telling the students to ensure that they can remember it. Mm. Um, would you would you say, Dave, is there a role? Let, let's let's imagine if we <laughs> we'll just stick to the things we've been talking about. Let's 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 take the dividing fractions. Let's imagine however we've decided to do it whether we've gone for this awareness first and then students have practiced or whether we've done the explanation practice and then maybe awareness has come later however we decide to do it let's let's imagine that we know that at a point in time our students can divide a a pair of fractions that we that we give them now we've no way of knowing whether they're going to do that tomorrow we may hope that they do and so on is there does the teacher's role then shift from also helping students make sure that they can remember the necessary so does that come into retrieval opportunities like low stakes quizzes or homeworks and starters alongside also making sure that they can remember the arbitrary or do, do teachers need to do something different with the necessary in your view i, I don't know if that makes sense but hopefully it does yeah it does uh, it does make sense um the um although i think i just got to i think you I may have been wrong, but you may have used the word remember. So for me, it's, it won't be about remembering. But anyway, okay. practice is really, really important. And yes. um, and so for me, I'm a great believer in never doing just one thing at a time. So I'm always interested in doing more than one thing at a time. So therefore, OK, so we want to end up practicing doing some work with fractions. So what I'm interested then is thinking about another part of the curriculum that we might go on to, to work on. But I'm just going to make sure that fractions are just around within that new topic, whatever the topic is. And so this is the sort of phrase that I've got that is called practice through progress. Mm. So I'm interested in practicing but we're still going to progress we're not just going to stay stay still so for example um uh sort of bruner's talked about the fact that um that we want to um the way i can't remember exactly what the quote is but it's somewhere around the line of of uh we 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 learn things uh not just because we want to hold that knowledge, but because there are, we want to be able to do more things quicker later on with that increased knowledge. Mm. And Gatenio, I remember him used to talk about saying that we, as a very, very young child, you don't learn to stand up. When you learn to stand up, you don't want to just become a statue and just stay standing up. What you want to do is to use standing so that you can begin to work on walking. So there's always a using, what have we just learnt and can we be using it? So whatever the next topic of the curriculum is, let's move on to that, but we're gonna use fractions within that. So I'll have to design Uh, ways of working on that new topic so that fractions are being employed all the time whilst we're learning new things within that topic. So if it happens to be something about area, for example, I'm just going to make sure that the area involves calculations to do with fractions. I'm not going to have lengths that are just nice whole numbers. 
And so there, there are ways in which you can always be continuing that practice, but within a context where there are new things that we're learning as well. We're not just doing loads of, of just questions uh, about fractions. Well, what about things that are a little bit more difficult to, to, to weave into to other topics? So I'm, I'm thinking like, again, just pick a, off the top of my head. Imagine that you've just finished some, some work on constructions or you've just finished some work on compound measures or something like that. And you look at the next two topics coming up in the curriculum and you think, oh, not too sure how exactly I'm going to going to work those in there. Is is that when there's a role then for whether it's a low stakes quiz or a starter that just literally is just in isolation a question on that prior topic with no with no context no link whatsoever, but it's just in there to ensure that students haven't forgotten how to do it. Is is there a role for that, Dave? And again, this is I'm, this isn't a trick question or anything like that. I'm, I'm genuinely genuinely interested about. How we ins- how we help our students not forget some of the things that that, that they knew at the time. One of the things I feel about be- becoming really fluent about something is mm. that when you're fluent with something, you might notice that you don't pay any attention to it. Yes, you're actually just using it with, to do something else, and your attention is on the something else. Yes, yes. Now, so that's what I want to model within practice. I want to model within practice so that the attention isn't necessarily on the thing that's being practiced. The attention is on the use of that thing in Mm. achieving something else so that it's already being subordinated. My word is subordination. So it's being subordinated to uh, another task, which I'm trying to achieve. So, um, yeah, you can have, I mean, sure, you can have starters and so on if you want to. That's fine. And practice is good. And that would be fine to be doing that. But I'm also interested in this idea of a different quality of practice yes. that begins to drive something which is, I have to, I've had to really think about at the moment in order to do it successfully into something where I'm beginning to not have to think about it, but it's beginning to be a natural thing for me to do. Um, and where I could turn my attention to its use rather than uh, actually carrying out the process itself. So I'm quite interested in that idea of that topic, that skill getting subordinated into a different task. Now, that could be a different topic, as I've said, and I think it's quite surprising, actually, how much you can actually fit one into the other. But, yes, it, but it also could be um, done in a way where that's done in a more, if you like, um, exploratory um, activity where there's some interesting things to find out about a certain setup where, if you like, I'm investigating something where I can find out things. I go, oh, wow, and have you, oh, gosh, I've noticed this connection and that connection and so on. But in that activity, within that investigation, there's a lot of work with fractions that I have to do yes. or constructions or whatever it is. So that at least within my practice, my focus isn't on just doing this question, doing the next question, doing this. But my, mm. fra- my practice is on using that because I'm trying to find out something else. I'm trying to notice connections between things or finding general rules for things or 
And in that point, I'm also developing myself as a mathematician as well, being working mathematically um, and being able to be creative, notice, um, trying to abstract rules, make connections, get conjectures, test things out and so on. Yeah, I, again, I, 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 there's no book coming here whatsoever. I, I, I oh, fully, you disappoint I fully agree. me, Greg. <laughs> no, there'll be plenty more coming yet, Dave. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, I wanted to say about, about practice. I, I want to talk to you about this this notion of, of subordination and when developing fluency and within practice because it was. I first heard Tom uh, Tom Franken mention this, and I, I couldn't quite get my. I, I could get my head around like what he was saying, but I didn't understand why it was important. So just before we, we, we talk about that a little bit more, um, one thing I, I wanted to say to you before I forget is, and I mentioned this on the podcast many times, is that the book you and Tom wrote, the, the ATM, uh, Practicing Mathematics, is it's in my top three, I, I'd probably say top three books of all time. No, I'm not just even talking education ones here, I'm talking just generally, because it, it really... That, combined with Colin Foster's work on, on mathematical etudes, really helped solve a problem for me. And that was, I'd always seen the distinction between, well, well, if to really simplify the way my teaching was at one point, it was explain something, then the kids practice it, and then we do problem solving. But my, my issue there was always, how do you know when the kids have had enough of this routine practice and they're ready to move on to something sophisticated? Because if it's a class of 30 kids, the kids are never already at the same time, so it ends up being a compromise and so on. And your, yours and Tom's uh, work in practicing mathematics and, and Colin's etudes really showed me that kids can get this practice fairly potentially structured practice, but also with these these opportunities to, to problem solve, be creative, conjecture, reason, argue, and so on and so forth. So the first thing I wanted to say was just, just thank you for, for putting out that book. And for, for any listeners who, who haven't got it, I mean, I've mentioned it tons of times, it's it's an absolute wonder. And my, my kind of follow-up question to that is, I wonder if you could just just help me a little bit more with this, this notion of, of, of subordination. Is, is it contained within these activities in this practicing mathematics, Dave? Or is this, is this, is this a separate idea from that? Okay, subordination came to me when I, was, um, when I was having a sailing lesson. <laughs> right, okay. Okay, now, okay. this was my first sailing lesson, complete novice, and I had a rudder. And I had a rope that I pulled that changed uh, the angle that the sail was was at um, relative to the boat, and um, and I was getting nowhere. I didn't know how much I had to pull this rope or how much I had to move this rudder, and I really wasn't getting very far. And then my teacher on the boat just said to me, "Look, just look at the sail." and make it just not flap. Right. And so my attention began to be on this sail. And I was, I could relate, I could tell whether it flaps or doesn't, didn't flap. Yeah. So I found myself doing things with a rope and the rudder, uh, which I wasn't necessarily conscious of, but I was just making sure that sail did not quite flap. and for me that that suddenly i educated ways how how i should be moving the rudder and the rope um because i saw the effect of those on the sail and my attention was on the sail not on the rope or the rudder 
And th so this is the notion, the heart of subordination. This is when it struck me that I, I learned so much more because I had to use the new things I was trying to learn and see the consequences of those on something that I understood that was separate to the rope and the rudder. I could see that sail. I understood whether or not it flapped. So I could tell whether I was being successful or not successful. Yes. And that for me is the key for um, this idea of subordination, of actually having to use something in order to achieve something else. Uh, but I can tell whether that I was successful or not, because I sort of know what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, so within mathematics, um, with mathematics, I suppose I, I'm trying to think of which two examples I'm going to offer. I'm going to offer, I'm going to offer firstly an example of the computer program logo that it sadly isn't around so much these yes. days, but yeah, you still classic. can get hold of it. And with logo, just to explain, um, you, you set up instructions like, like programming bit, but it's quite a simple, straightforward programming where you tell a turtle or a point or an arrow, what it doesn't matter what it is, but you tell them how to move. You can say forward so much, and then you can turn, say, turn to the right so much, go forward so much, turn to left so much, and so on and so on. So you're giving instructions of how it moves. And um, I used to get children to write down instructions to draw an equilateral triangle. Hmm. And so they would put down their instructions and they would classically want say to go move forward a certain amount and then do a right turn of 60 degrees. Yes. Go forward a certain amount, right turn 60 degrees, go forward a certain amount. And having written this little program, they would then send it off and watch their turtle moving and the turtle mm -hmm. would leave a line behind as it moves. And they'd see that it's not an equilateral triangle. Yes. And so they could see the consequences of what they did and they could understand whether they successful or not from what they saw the result of. And from that, they could learn and realize that, hey, hang on, something's wrong. It's not, can't be 60 degrees then. Why isn't it 60 degrees? And, and so they end up adapting and educating what they did and test it out again and see the consequences of what they did. So that's one idea where the, the if you like, the what I did within the programming gets subordinated to the result that I want to achieve, the picture that I want to achieve. Yes. Another example, which is, is not so easy to explain, is, um, but I, I'm going to try. You can tell me how successful <laughs> I am. Go for it. So I have an example within algebra where I... I work with a class where they've maybe never, ever met any formal notation before, never met an X before or anything like that. And I do a sort of think of a number activity, uh, mm. but I do it in a very, very particular way, which I won't go into now. But the end of this purely verbal activity where no one's allowed to write anything, I, I work with them in a way where I'm 
I'm fairly sure they are now clear that if I say I'm think of a number and I do various things to it, they know that they have to do inverse operations and in the reverse order. Yes. And they're actually really quite clear about that. And But I've used things like that might have, I don't know, I may have done two operations with my original number or something like that. But when they're clear about that, I then say, okay, now I'm thinking of a number and I'm going to uh, take away 18, I divide by three, I'm going to add four, I'm going to multiply by two, and I'm going to, and I get 100. Hmm. And they go, I can't remember that. And, and I say, oh, oh, do you want me to write down what I said then? And they say, oh, yes, 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 please. Now, remember, they already know what it is they have to do. But then what I write down, I write down very carefully. I write down, so I'm thinking of a number and I write X. I take away 18. I divide by three and I make a point of very carefully drawing my division line and writing three underneath. And then I'm going to add four and I'm very carefully go along the division line and I go for my add sign four and then i'm multiplying by it and i have this big bracket one side bracket the other side by two at the front and so on and so on and so on so this is the first time they sort of meet formal notation the thing is they're not just going to meet it they they're going to do something with it they already know what it is they have to do Mm. so they begin to to read this notation in a way um because they know what to do with it so they begin already to read the order of operations and do inverse operations and so on uh, to find my number and what i find is because the formal notation is immediately used and subordinated to their sort of task i find that they learn this notation really quickly uh, because of the way in which it's being subordinated, being used. So it's not just introduced, it's being used for a purpose uh, at the time. So the general principle of, of subordination is that you you get someone to try to do A, whatever A is, yes. and they understand what it is they have to do. Mm. But you pedagogically don't allow them to do A directly you force them to have to go through B. Yes. And by doing B, that has an effect on A, which is what they want. And they can see on A whether or not they're achieving what they want to achieve, but they're having to always do that through B. So B is always being subordinated. And my experience is people learn B so much quicker and they become so much more fluent than if I were to just concentrate on B and do it uh, isolated on its own. That's uh, it's fascinating that Dave. It's it, it does sound counterintuitive, right? You, you'd you'd think if your attention was on B, you would learn B more than your attention being on on A. You learn in B, and it, but again, it's the the way you're describing it, particularly the 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 sailing analogy. When I think about things kind of outside of the world of mathematics, that 
that's that certainly seems to make sense. Is do you do you get the sense that this has got fairly widespread applications? It is could this be? Are we talking the majority of mathematics practice could be could be framed in this way, or is this just a few specialist cases? Well, I think um, I can't see why it can't be widespread at all. But you have to sit down and you have to think about. It's not easy sometimes yeah, of course, to think of about. What is the B that I want them to get to know <laughs> yes. and practice? Yes. And what is the A that, 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 that they can be trying to achieve that they would recognize? The important thing with A is that you've got to recognize achievement in A without actually knowing anything about B. You've got to know yes. about A in its yes. own right. And, but they're not allowed to directly. So ah, I'll give you another example. Okay. <laughs> okay good. Let's supposing, um, imagine you've got a grid that's six by six. Okay. And I consider them coordinates. So I've got the origin at the bottom left, and I've yep. got um, uh, going up to six on the x-axis, six on the y-axis, yep. and it's a dot array. Okay, yep. And I could play an activity where we take turns where you can put a cross or a circle, your circle I'm crosses, um, on each dot in turn, and we have to get corners of a square. Okay, okay? yeah, yep. Now we can play that game directly, okay? Yep. But I then introduce saying, but I'm not going to allow you to play that directly. Instead, you have to write down or say out loud a coordinate, and someone else is going to put the cross on the coordinate that you say. Okay. Now, suddenly that forces you to have to go through practicing coordinates. Yes. In order to achieve something that you would recognize whether you achieved it or not. So, if I say four, three, and someone actually puts a cross at three, four, something's gone wrong. Yes. And yes. I could see that maybe I've either I've done something wrong, they've done yeah. something wrong. But we can both be, we're both practicing this, this using coordinates all the time, but we can see when there's ever a mistake going wrong. We would notice that. And so there, just uh, this, if you like, relatively simple thing of, of coordinates here is being subordinated to my task, which is I want to make squares. And squares is quite nice because making squares, of course, you can have squiffy squares as well as horizontal and vertical squares. And that brings awarenesses within themselves. So again, I'm doing this thing of more than one thing at once. I'm learning about squares and what makes a square a square, as well as practicing coordinates. I like it. I like it. Is it could, could they, can you bang out a book on this, Dave? I won't mind getting a big collection of these tasks. Can you? Yeah, well, now we're, now we're in lockdown too. You're a bit of time on your own. Oh, yeah, you? oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I suspect a book's long overdue, actually. Maybe we'll see. Watch this space. That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, I'm conscious of not taking up too much of your time, Dave. Do you have a little bit more time left just to talk a little bit about algebra? Would that be okay? Um, yeah, that's fine. Apart from if we're going to talk a little bit about algebra, that's <laughs> going to be a problem. <laughs> well, let's. Um, how, how long can you? How long can you spare? And I'll see what we can. Fit well, in. we can see. Well, let's let's start talking, and we can. Let's see what happens. See okay, what happens. Let's see what happens.
<laughs> now, the reason I wanted to talk about algebra is, is you mentioned it. You mentioned it right up up top when we were talking about um, favorite topics, and also when I was um, doing a bit of background prep for this for this interview, and also um, I messaged um, Tom Frankham as well to to see what he thought would be interesting to to, to speak about. He sent me a link to your article. I'm approaching arithmetic algebra algebraically. And again, it, it blew my mind a little bit. And the way I just wanted to, to get into your views on algebra is just to quote um, a, a phrase from early on in that article where you say arithmetic, uh, sorry, arithmetic is impossible without algebra. Now, again, that, that feels counterintuitive. It feels almost like the opposite way round that, that, that I would imagine that phrase would, would be said. So, so what do you mean by that? And, and what is the relationship between arithmetic and algebra for, for you, Dave? Okay, so... So firstly, um, a key thing is, is what do we consider algebra to be? So that's a, uh, a big one to start with. So yes. what does it mean to work algebraically? And some people will say, well, it's when you first get a letter appearing or something like that. Mm. And there are other people within the research literature that talk about saying, well, it's when uh, a letter appears on both sides of an equation or that someone has to operate on the unknown. or There are various sort of different opinions that people have about algebra. Um, the line I take is, is one that's been influenced very much by Caleb Catenio, who I mentioned earlier. Um, if, I, if I think about what's involved uh, with algebra. I think about things like noticing connections, seeing structure within situations, abstracting rules, generalizing, applying those rules to new situations. This is what I, I seem to think about uh, when I think about algebra. But if that's what I think it is about, then it's this realization that very young children have been doing this right from before they ever even begin to get into a school. Mm. You hear them say things like, um, I go to the park today. Or something like, oh, there are sheeps in this field. Yeah. So what the only way in which they say something like, I go to the park uh, yesterday, is not because they've copied that from hearing what someone else has said. The only way in which they could say something like that is because they have noticed themselves that there's a, a rule that seems to be around here. They've abstracted a rule from what they have heard, which is when you want to talk about something that's happened in the past, you tend to add ED onto the verb. Yes, yes. And so they've notice that connection, they've noticed uh, that rule that's around. And so they've got this, um, they're going to apply that rule to this new situation with the verb to go. And it's a perfectly, wonderfully mathematical and algebraic thing to be doing. That's exactly what we want kids to be doing in the classroom when they're working on algebra. So um, and also, you know, things like the plural of things, you know, you add an S on the end. And so they say sheeps. And it's not because they've heard it, it's because they have abstracted that rule and they are generalizing and so on. Mm. So in fact, there are plenty of examples within someone learning their first language where that's what they're doing all the time. 
very, very young children are spending all their time trying to not realize that the world is full of a whole load of abstract, arbitrary, random things that happen that aren't connected with one another. They're looking for links and connections between things because knowing a rule about something is so much more economic than learning a whole load of individual things isolated. Yes. So, so I take the line that, which is Catenio's line, is that algebra is an attribute of the mind. It's something that we all have as human beings. This is something that we all do. We, we work, I'm going to say, algebraically. And I think there's a real payoff to thinking about algebra in this wider context um, than just thinking of it purely as items within the algebra curriculum. So I suppose I'm interested in, if you like, working algebraically on the algebra curriculum, because not I don't think we always work algebraically in the algebra curriculum. But this is realization that if actually I think about working algebra as that way of thinking, then that's around all over the place and necessary in all over the place. So that bit about me asking you, you know, what do you know about the number, whatever it was? Yes. Uh, so make up another one, 1,745 or something. Um, I only know about that number because I'm aware about structure. I'm aware about connection between things and that there are general rules about numbers. That's that when I tend to say a uh, hundred after a digit, then that tends to mean something. And, um, and that that's got a relationship to me saying 30, 50, and the, the T sound and so on. So there are these rules that are around that are necessary, really, if I'm going to make sense of number in the first place anyway. And if I were to ask, as I've again asked many people about whether they do a calculation like um, 123 plus 98. Can you manage that one? 123 <laughs> plus 98. Uh, well, actually, yeah. Craig, yeah, I mean, two, two, right, one. yeah, well, yeah, you hang on. So that's an even oh, fight for people to do. Oh, sorry. But in the spirit of John Mason, when you're doing that, just notice what it is you are doing to yes. work out that calculation. And you're noticing that you are essentially using things that you know about structure and generality in order to do that. There are all sorts of, um, you couldn't do that unless you knew about certain structural things or you knew about um, the fact that you're looking for, um, you're looking for the fact that you could consider adding on a hundred and taking off two. And that's a very, sort of algebraic way to do, to know that I can, um, that there, uh, let me see, that there is, I can think of something not just as a number in its own right, but I can think of it as not just 98, but I can think of it as 99 take away one, 100 take away two, yes. and so on and so on and so on. And I will selectively choose which of those is useful for the particular calculation that I've got to do. Um, if I just say also, maybe if I just think about 2 plus 3 equals 5, 2 plus 3 equals 5, yes, sure. If I just think about that as an isolated fact, then I would say that's sort of quite 
about arithmetic really mm. but if i realize that it means that two cats plus three cats is five cats or that uh two pens plus three pens give me five pens or that uh two hands plus three hands give me five hands i'm suddenly getting this sense of real generality where i can end up mm -hmm. saying things like and also two fourteenths plus three fourteenths are five fourteenths or that two geckos plus three geckos are five geckos. I don't have to know a thing about geckos and what their sleeping habits are or whatever to know for sure that two geckos plus three geckos must give me five of those geckos. And likewise, two fourteenths plus three fourteenths are five fourteenths. I don't need to know about fourteenths, but I will know that that statement is true. Likewise, three X plus three X, sorry, 2x plus 3x is 5x. When I start seeing 2 plus 3 equals 5 in all this general way and realize that it is a general powerful statement about an infinite number of possibilities, including 2,000 plus 3,000 is 5,000 and so on and so on and so on, then I'm, I'm seeing that algebraically. I'm seeing that the generality that's within that statement and I'm not looking at it as an isolated thing. So it's that thing about when I'm doing arithmetic, behind the scene, I'm making use of awarenesses I've got about structure and generality about number that, I, that I'm using to carry out arithmetic. And it can give me insights then into ways in which I approach arithmetic by approaching it in a way where I'm making use of these more general algebraic awarenesses about number that sit underneath it all. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating, uh, Dave, to listen to you uh, talk about it that way. Um, I, th I wonder whether, whether you'd agree with this. So, so I, I, I hundred, genuinely 100% agree with everything you've said. And I think that what you you and Tom do in the practicing mathematics book is is a really good example of this where you have activities um, and practice activities in there where there's there's always an opportunity to think a bit deeper whether it be to to, to generalize or conjecture and so on I also think Malcolm Swan was a master of this mm. with with many of his activities yeah. I think the the late Don Stewart is is probably my favorite example of this very rarely do you get one of Don's activities that on the face of it will look like you know a, a possibly a fairly mundane set of practice questions and yet there's 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 always something going on very, very rarely with a letter involved but there's there's just there's there's something going on there that if if you're willing to look for it and notice it then you can draw it out and, and go off go off on a, on a wonderful journey i, I wonder do you, do you think that I've, I've been thinking this for a while but but you you saying this has, has brought it to the forefront of my mind do you think that in terms of school mathematics that the algebra has got a bit of a branding issue in the sense that most students and possibly many teachers just would associate algebra just with letters and possibly even just solving equations or collecting like terms and so on. And whenever we divide the curriculum up into number, algebra, geometry and statistics or whatever, it gives this sense that algebra is this this kind of isolated isolated topic. Whereas, you know, almost as if it were, almost as if we were to, to rename the, the kind of thing you're talking about, which is 
kind of alge- thinking algebraically almost as opposed to the formal algebra mm. then there's like like john mason says the, the, the there's there's opportunities for that to fit into to, to pretty much everything you, you can you can generalize with almost everything but it's it's the fact that it has this 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 branding of, of algebra that i think makes it have quite negative connotations often in students minds and possibly even teachers minds do you, do you think that's a fair point well i sometimes feel that there can be and um there can be a sense of um that sometimes within um maybe teachers working with the younger children sometimes some teachers might be a little worried about the facts that algebra sounds like a difficult mm. topic or whatever. Yes. Um, and I think this widening view of, or maybe also differentiating the difference between what is on the algebra curriculum, which might be collecting light terms or whatever it is, mm. blah, blah, blah. And this idea about thinking algebraically, which I would argue is, is what we all do. We have, yes. we, we, we all do that. And we do that actually on a daily basis with our lives, we're looking mm. for connections, generalities, spotting patterns, and so on. Um, and realizing that that is a f- wonderful resource that's around within all our students. And it's about, are there ways we can access that in whatever mathematics it is that we're teaching, which might be algebra, but it could be number, it could be geometry, it could be statistics, it could be a number of different ways. That ability that we all have, all children have, uh, the fact that they can look at particular cases, they can be seeking to find connections between them, they can have Uh, conjectures about things they can test things out they can begin to develop rules about things find out whether those rules uh you know um withstand testing and so on that this is an attribute that all our students have and we could use it as teachers and it's a great resource for them to be engaging in whatever mathematics it is that we're teaching yeah, again, I think you're right. I think the the danger is if, if if algebra gets associated purely and simply with with unknowns or variables or whatever, and if we go back to what we were talking about earlier about how we, we try and weave, whether we call it interweaving or whatever, if we try to weave in something we've taught in the past into, into the next topic and so on, the danger is that the way algebra is, is, is to use your example before, we're teaching um, area, okay, the way to weave algebra is in is just let's just chuck a couple of X's on the lengths and see what happens there when we work out work out the, the area. Whereas I think from from what you're saying, a an alternate and possibly better way to, to, to think about it is, is let's think about the relationship between length and width and let's think about what happens when one increases, one stays the same and so on. That That's more the algebraic thinking than a few token letters here and there. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, so can I offer you an example then? I've got a... I've got a very, very simple GeoGebra file. Oh, yes, go. Okay, go. and the uh, what the GeoGebra file has, it, it has um, a rectangle, and the top left corner of the rectangle is fixed, okay. and the bottom right corner of the rectangle you can drag. Okay, yep. And you have an option of having up on the screen uh, something that says area equals, and it will tell you whatever the area is of your rectangle. 
Yep. And you have the option of also having perimeter equals, and it will tell you what the perimeter is. Yep. But if I think at the moment, I, I hide the perimeter one and I just see the area one. Mm. Imagine I start off with uh, a, a rectangle that happens to be a square with just an area of one. Okay. And I grab hold of that bottom right hand corner and I start dragging it to the right. Yes. Okay. And the area will say one and then two and then three and then four and so on. Yep. And then at some point I'll stop and I'm going to say, I'm going to start dragging it down. Mm. And then they will begin to notice how that's changing now. And it depends, of course, where I stopped going, moving it to the yes. right and going down. Let's suppose it's going down in sevens now. And I can begin to ask them, what's the next number it's going to say before I do it? What's the next number yes. going to say? And then I might stop and say, I'm going to move it to the right. What's it going to say now? Mm. And and so there is, and then depending upon, if I'd had, for example, a seven by five rectangle at the time, and I move to the right, then it's going to change by five each time. Um, and then I can be asking, why is it, why is it going up in fives? How come? And ask someone to explain that to me. And then I'm going to move down. And now why is it changing in that? So what I'm doing is getting them to be noticing connections, finding rules, and I'm, I'm asking them to be thinking algebraically yes. in a way where they're beginning to learn about area, where they can begin to tell me, oh, this is how you work out the area, and this is why it is what it is. And there are nice activities you can do with that file as well, so that given any area number, I can ask people to try and move it so that it says 54. How would you move it from where you are at the moment? How much up would you go? How much along would you go? And people start looking at things like they'll have to think about factors of 54 and so on. So it's a lot of arithmetic. You can also be doing uh, number work. You can be doing within that simple file. We can then also have perimeter up there. We can be looking at when could I get these the same or once twice the other and all that stuff. But anyway, that's a way in which I would say I'm working with someone on area, but in a way where I'm calling upon their algebraic way of thinking. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask you one more question about algebra, Dave, and then just a reflection and then your big three, if, if that's all right okay. with, with you. Um, no, I don't know whether this is going to open a can of worms or not. And feel free to, to, to say no if this is going to, going to take too, too much of your time to talk about. But um, grid algebra is, is one thing that uh, Tom recommended that I ask you about. And, and again, having done a little bit of research uh, in prep for this interview, Again, I was thinking that this this sounds like something that, that listeners would enjoy. Did you have time to talk about why you what grid algebra is and, and why you believe it's important? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, grid algebra is a bit of computer software, and so to try and help you, I'm going to ask you having to imagine certain things. So, imagine I've got a grid, uh, which is essentially um, I've got a row of the that's got one, two, three, four, five, six along the top. 
Okay, keep this simple for me, David. Okay. Please. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yep. And then Got it. the row underneath, I'm going to have the two times table. So it'd have two, four, six, eight, twelve. Got it. Yep. Row underneath is a three times table. Okay, and the row yep. underneath is a four times table, and so on and so on. Okay. Yep. So I have that grid. And um, within that grid, um, I could. I can have various number activities I can do. I can hide some of the numbers and ask people what number should be there and they can drag the number in and things like that. Um, or I might even just have one number appearing uh, on that grid and I could highlight another cell and they have to decide and drag in the right number in that cell and so on. And we can also scroll along a bit so that I might be quite a long way into those tables, not just at the beginning. So it's not just one, two, three, four at the top, but it could be, you know, 143, 144, 145 yes. and so on. And I might even have scrolled down a bit so that the top row is not the one times table anymore. It might be the four times table, for example, yes. and yes. underneath could be the five and the six and so on. So I could do very, lots of number activities with that. And, and that's one thing I can do. But if I go back to thinking that original grid with one, two, three, four, five, six, and so on, then, um, then I, I begin to ask a question like, um, when I'm on that first row, now let's not go to the first row, let's go to the third row where it's a three times table. Yep. And I've got the number six, and I'm going to move to the next cell on the right of that. Okay, yep. Which would be nine. Yep. Okay. Then I ask, what do you do to six then to get to that next cell? And they tell me you add three. Yep. So what you can do with grid algebra is you can click on the six and you can drag it to the next cell and it will say, Rather than nine, it will say six plus three. Nice. Yep, nice. And likewise, if I then, supposing I now have six plus three, and I'm going to drag it two cells to the left, so that's going back in the times table. Yes, yes. It would say six plus three, which is what I started with, but it would then yeah. say take away six. Yes, yes. And then I can keep dragging it and I can do more and more building up expressions. But I can drag not only horizontally, I can drag vertically. <laughs> nice. So if I start with a number in the first row, the one times table, yes. supposing I have the number um, four there, and I'm going to drag it down to the third row, the three times table, yep. it would say three times four. Yep. And then I can take three times four and I can drag it along the three times table a bit and it can say three times four, take away nine, for example. Yes. And then I might drag it back to the first row, in which case it will have that with a division line underneath it and three underneath. <laughs> nice. And then I can yep. keep going, keep going. And it will always show it in correct notation, formal notation. And so... I can begin to take journeys around the grid where the expression that's formed is in a sense a historical artifact that tells me mm. about the journey that I've just made. It essentially tells me the journey I've made on this grid. 
Now, I'm going to say more about this and I'm going to bring in algebra more here. But one thing here, it's the idea here for me, it's based on, um, if you like, the idea of embodied cognition. There are things that we know that's also part of our body as much as part of our brain, our mind. So making journeys as things that we all know about. We all leave our house. Well, maybe not in the current COVID climate, but we leave our house and we do a journey somewhere else. And we know in that journey, we go down this road a certain amount, then we go down that road and this road and so on. So we know about journeys. And we also know that when we come back home, we do the inverse journey. We to the, the last bit first, and then we go and we work in the opposite direction and so on. So children have, if you like, bodily experiences of making journeys. And so making a journey in a grid is something that they sort of know about. They know about making journeys. And what I'm beginning to put on top of what they know with this is about um, in a sense, beginning to have formal notation, putting in a situation with numbers, but also beginning to work algebraically with it. So for example, supposing I have actually a blank grid, but I start off with a number in one cell and I drag it and make it a journey and I will create a final expression written very formally. If I then rub out all the um, uh, intermediate steps and I then say to my class oh no I've forgotten where, where did I go which what was my journey they then have to and it comes back to subordination they understand about journeys they understand what it is they have to do they've seen a journey being created anyway uh, but it's now all rubbed out so they have to look at the final formal notation and they have to work out what was it that got done. So they'll have, they have to attend to what was done first, what was done second, and so on. And that be means they're beginning to learn about order operations within this expression. So they begin to, they can take that first number and they begin to drag it around the grid and they can always see whether they're right or wrong because they can look at what they've got so far and they can see whether it looks right in the final expression. Yes. And so they know whether they're right or wrong at any stage. And so they're beginning to learn order operations within that. But then having and then there are various um, computer generated tasks they can be doing of which one of them is that they're given a final expression and a start number in the grid and they've got a time limit to try and recreate that expression and that i find is very so it's it's a activity that children get very excited about trying to do that within time limit um but they're always there understanding of notation and the order for operations being subordinated within the task. But then having done that task, um, I then say to them something like, okay, I'm bored with numbers. Tell me your favorite letter. And I put a letter in the grid rather than a number. 
And I take that on a journey around and again, rub out the same and then say again, well, what was my journey? Oh, no, what was my journey? And they realize that even though they have an initial reaction to letter, letter, what's a letter doing? Yes. They they already know the activity and they soon realize that it doesn't really matter what on the earth I started with because the attention is on the operations rather than the numbers, the initial number. Yes. So I find that they comfortably begin to work with letters within the grid. And so they begin to get very used to formal notation that involves a letter. There are then various activities I can do. So in the cell that contains, say, the letter, which could be any letter in the alphabet, it could be X, um, I can also drag in a number into that cell as well. And I can blow up that cell a little bit uh, into another little window that will say X equals, say, seven, if I put in the number seven. And then I can work on things like substitution, because if X is seven, then the final cell with this bigger expression, what number can I drag into that that would be yes. accepted and so on? And then, and I'm doing this, there's so many things you can do with grid algebra, but I'm doing saying this really quickly. Yeah, I, could, I have another activity then where imagine I've taken a letter, they've now got used to letters and expressions with letters, and we can work on, by the way, equivalent expressions and so on, because you can take different routes going from the same start to the same finish, and they'll all be equivalent expressions. But anyway, supposing I now do take um, a letter and I drag it to greater final expression, or sometimes you can just enter in a final expression anyway, you don't even have to make the journey. But imagine I've got that in a cell and I've rubbed out everything else so that all I've got is that final expression that involves a letter. I then say, oh no, I've now completely forgotten where that letter was. <laughs> where is the letter? And now to find the letter, they have to, if you like, drag it backwards to the inverse journey. And there's a way, uh, Grid Algebra has a facility where if you drag an expression and you drag it to a place where you're doing the inverse operation of the last operation, it will cancel that out in the expression you see on the in the cell, rather than sort of adding it on as a separate journey I've made. So you gradually simplify the expression as you're dragging around until you're left only with the letter. I don't know whether that makes sense or not. It does. It it, it does. But what what? No. It, it, sorry, Dave. You go. So what what you're doing there is that you're then having to look at that expression, and you're having to read it in the inverse order. So you're yes. you're beginning yes. to essentially begin to do all the inverse, and then if I were to put a number into that big expression. <laughs> So that actually it then reads that big expression equals, say, 100 or something. Then by dragging that 100 backwards through the inverse journey, you are solving that equation. And you end up with x equals the solution. So through this, 
using grid algebra and I've used grid algebra with, I did some, some research in with a, a year five class in a primary school where they'd never met a letter, they'd never met, uh, well, they've met letters in English, but they never let, met a letter in mathematics. They'd never met any formal notation, but within just three sort of hour and a half lessons, uh, they were solving quite complex uh, algebraic expressions on paper away from the software. So one that's sort of I, uh, like, for example, I've got an example here that they did things like um, two brackets, B minus 18 divided by three. That's just the B minus 18 divided by three plus four. Actually, I'll start again. B minus 18 divided by three plus four all multiplied by two equals 128. Nice. So they were, a number of them were solving this equation and they would solve it by the way in just writing down B equals 198. They would not need to do anything else on paper at all. They just wrote the answer straight away because in the end they could just do it all in their head. And and that's partly because the, the notation got has become completely subordinated for them. They were very fluent about the notation. They could explain what the notation meant. I never explained the notation. They just got to know it because uh, they realized the movements they were making in the grid. And they could deal with this whole idea about making journeys and doing inverse journeys. And that all just made sense for them. Now, I, I said it would be my last question on this day, but I'm just going to sneak in one more just on, on grid algebra. And again, feel free to, to decline if this is too lengthy an answer. But do you find from this, it's then a fairly smooth transition into perhaps like solving equations where you've got the unknown on both sides or solving equations where the unknown is something like, you know, five subtract B. So the unknown is is, is, is a negative. Is, is it a fairly smooth transition? transition because that's where I'll, sometimes I've gone wrong students get really comfortable with with really sophisticated expressions or equations but of a certain type you know where you can do the inverse to to, to get to the answer and then I, I struggle with that transition is it, yeah is, is it is it doable yeah no that's a really good question and the answer uh, for me is that any tool you use and this definitely use includes grid algebra as much as any other tool it does a certain job yes, and yes. don't expect it to solve the world, the world's yeah, problems. So for me, grid algebra does a certain job and it does it, I think, exceedingly well in my experience of working with it. Um, and I know it's not just me, other people that work with it as well. Mm. Um, and what it does is get them incredibly comfortable with formal notation, with letters, yes and with the idea of inverse operations and the idea that um, the idea, if you like, about what happens if you want to move something from one side of an equation to the other. Yes, because also yes. you can do things like stop halfway through the journey and see what's been chucked where. In fact, you can, grid algebra also will give you the whole steps through the whole journey that you've made forwards and backwards, so to speak. And that would effectively show you all the steps that might be involved within solving an, an equation if you were to do it step by step. So 
once they've got the idea of they can chuck things from one side to the other of the equal sign, for me, grid algebra has then done its job. And also, as well as working with the software, there are, there are, if you like, individual computer-generated tasks that the software offers that I've mentioned. There's a lot of those in there. But I also do a lot of paper work as well alongside that. So I have a number of sheets where they're working with things on paper that relate to the activities they've just done with the software. Because in the end of the day, I want them to work on paper. I want them to be able to solve equations on paper. Yes. Now, once they've got that idea of chucking things around either side, then that's what you do. You start chucking things yeah. around on either side. And it actually doesn't matter whether it said add 47 or it said add B. It doesn't matter. I still, because attention is always with operations rather than the individual numbers. It's the operations you're paying attention to within algebra. So they can chuck things around the both so across the equal sign. So if there's an X over here and an X over there, we'll just chuck one the other side. <laughs> and then we see where we get. And I think one thing that I, I've always felt within algebra is that we go too quickly into solving equations, feeling as if that is the only yes. thing that's important. Yes. Spend time just chucking things around the place <laughs> and seeing what different weird and wonderful variations you can get from a start equation. And then the issue, a separate issue becomes, which of these are helpful in yes, what situations? Yes. But if I've got that confidence of chucking things around, that's so important. It's so important in more, if you like, in advanced and in inverted commas algebra, where I do have to chuck things around. I do have to play around. I do have to explore things being in different forms to try and solve something that's a bit more tricky and and so that fluency of just being happy about chucking things around within equations is incredibly important and i i feel that's something that i would love to see around in classrooms a lot more so grid algebra does a job and i think it does quite a good job and um but that's you then there's a whole world of other things to be exploring with algebra as well and craig if i just say that um at lafra we're working on making grid algebra free for everyone oh, brilliant. so we're working at the moment on um having it it will be up on a website that will be just be gridalgebra.com oh amazing uh it's not up at the time that I'm speaking at the moment, but it will be. And so um, that's something that's also with um, the uh, with the Association of Teachers of Mathematics who are currently have been selling the the old version of uh, grid algebra in the past. They're also sort of working with us to to make that freely available for everyone. That's amazing. That's amazing news. And this episode will come out probably just before Christmas. So this could be a Christmas present for everybody there. Yeah. So, so I'm uh, hoping it will be up um, maybe a little bit after Christmas, but it will be up nice. reasonably soon after that. That's great. news. That's fantastic news. Well, final question from me, Dave, that I'm going to hand over to you for your, your big three. So my last question is just a reflection. Uh, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? 
Well, yeah, mm, that's an interesting one because for me, things are never about changing my mind so much. It's often about adaptations, about ongoing developments. And often how I think now um, incorporates how I used to think in the past, it rather than replacing it. But I suppose one thing that in a sense I've, I have modified quite a bit is, is almost how we started at the beginning, is that is about telling or not telling. And because when I started teaching, I pretty much just didn't tell anyone anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I began to suddenly realize that there were some situations where, do you know what? It might be quite useful if I tell them this. (laughs) And so, and, and that awareness about realizing that actually it can be useful to tell them some things, um, maybe begin to think about, well, actually, when might I tell and when might I not tell? Uh, so in some ways, I've I've shifted and changed a bit, you know, certainly within the idea of telling. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, okay, Dave, over to you for your uh, for your big three. So, what three either websites, blog posts, or books would you recommend our listeners check out? And as ever, these will be available on the uh, podcast show notes page. Okay, well, I'm going to go actually for for you've mentioned Don Stewart and actually. Don Stewart's blog, which I know many people know, but I, I really just want to push that again. Don Stewart um, was also a really good friend of mine, as well as someone that I knew within, you know, the um, the maths education world. And he just was a just had a he was a great mathematician. He was a great teacher, and he had um, a wonderful way of looking at things, creating questions, problems, and so on. And there's so much that's just wonderful up on his blog. So that's my number one. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, you can't mention Don enough uh, in, in my eyes. In, in terms of, in terms of task design, Dave, would he be up there alongside Malcolm Swan with you in terms of, of kind of the greatest you've seen? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're quite different. Um, yes. Yes. And because I remember talking with Don when he was beginning to think about a blog and, and he was trying to work out what is it I put up or something. And he began to think, you know, do I use PowerPoints? Where at that time, he, he just didn't ever use PowerPoints particularly. <laughs> but then began to realize that, okay, maybe that's the tool I begin to use. Because previously, he'd produced just a lot of uh, sheets that were under the name of Median uh, that yes. were around. Um, but anyway, he's, they're very, that the him and, and Malcolm are quite different but my goodness they're both amazing uh both have been amazing yeah so i would put them both right up there (laughs) me too fantastic and what you going for for your number two okay my number two actually something a little bit about mathematics enjoying sort of mathematics but it's relation to other things there's a wonderful book by um uh douglas hofstadter called godel escher and bark Godel Escherbach, An Eternal Golden Braid. And it's a brilliant book that um, talks about essentially Godel's incomplete, incomplete this theorem, but builds up the story in parallel, jumping between that and the artist Escher's work and, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach's music. And the way in which he, he, he sort of builds 
builds up a wonderful story about these interlinking is just magnificent. I, I think it's a lovely piece of work. And for me, it's a beautiful uh, sense of, of how these seemingly maybe different things are, are utterly uh, interlinked in terms of mathematical connections. So the, wow, I've not heard and not come across that one. Oh, it's an old book. It's a. It came out, I think, about seventy nine or something. But it's still available. It's still in print, and I would really recommend it. Fantastic, fantastic. And what about number three? Well, number three, um, I'm going to slightly apologise about this, but it's something that um, Lorinda Brown, myself, and Dick Tarter uh, sort of put together, which is to put together a number of Caleb Catenio's writings. It's called a Catania Anthology, and it's available from the Association of Teachers of Mathematics, ATM. But I've, I've mentioned a couple of times that Catania was a huge influence on me, and he's someone that I met on many occasions before he died and, um, you know, got to know reasonably well in, 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 uh, in, uh, throughout a number of... He used to run seminars that used to last many days, <laughs> and I've, uh, in fact, I've got even recordings, audio recordings of many of those seminars. And he was a huge influence on me. And I think that uh, anthology is a really good collection of some of his writing. And it's maybe the most accessible way of, of um, getting at some of his thoughts. Uh, some of his other books can be a little bit more... Um, yeah, a little bit more work to really get around what he's really getting at. Although personally, I really like them and I, and I love <laughs> how it makes me think. But I think that's a, a really good accessible collection of his writing. And I think it would make everyone really think a lot about their teaching. Wow. Okay. That's definitely on my list as well. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, I'll tell you what, Dave, whenever uh, Colin Foster was putting the running order together, he says, I'll put Dave on last because you two might end up talking longer than the time is allocated. I, I was knackered when I was coming into this conversation. My, my, my head is banging, but I don't think it's because I'm tired. I think it's just because of all the, all the ideas that are swimming around in my head. So I'm going to need to have a lie down after this, Dave. But it has been absolutely fascinating, and it's been a pleasure to, to have you on the show. So uh, thank you so much for your time today, Dave. I've, I've really, really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, lovely talking with you, Craig, as well. So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Dave Hewitt. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As I say, and if you, if you missed this, this was the 10th interview that I'd done. I did five on a Friday and then another five on a on a Monday. And they're all, um, Colin had scheduled them all in, so I had one and a half hour slots for each one. And regular listeners will know, me trying to fit in an interview in one and a half hours is asking for trouble. And indeed, as I got more and more into the series, the interview 
interviews were getting longer and longer because I kept thinking of good questions to ask guests based on what I'd asked former guests and doing callbacks to previous episodes and so on. And I was looking at the watch thinking, right, I've got to wrap this up in like four minutes because now I'm going to be on to the next one straight away with no break whatsoever. And I was trying to glug water down wherever possible. Anyway, to cut long story short, by the time I got to Dave, I was absolutely knackered. I'd done nine in a row and I God knows how many hours, maybe 13 hours of conversation, something like that. And I was really annoyed at myself because I wanted to be fresh and on the ball for Dave because there's so much I wanted to ask him. And also, I knew he was an incredibly knowledgeable man and I'd need to be on my toes to have comebacks and, and try and articulate my point. But luckily, Dave re-energised me. Now, I'm not saying I managed to hold my own in, in any of the discussions whatsoever. I mean, Dave is far, far smarter than I am. But it was just fascinating to be able to, to challenge him on some of his views and... Yeah, just listen to his responses and listen to his his, his reasons and justifications for, for his approaches. I, I thought it was a really good debate, a really good discussion, and, and I'm so pleased that I had the opportunity to speak to Dave um, on this podcast. So, um, just a few things I wanted to pick up on. There's not much I wanted to add that, that I, I didn't get a chance to speak to Dave about. I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Often I come away from these conversations... And when I reflect on him thinking, oh, I wish I'd had a chance just to say that or push a bit further. But I was really happy. I managed to get through everything I wanted to with, with Dave. So I'll keep this takeaway relatively short. You'll be pleased to, pleased to hear. Um, the first thing is, I really like, like Dave's distinction between um, the arbitrary and the necessary and the notion of, um, of educating awareness. In fact, I like all of what Dave says. He's one of my favourite writers. And what I also like is there's this kind of debate in mathematics education. and You get the extremes at the end of the spectrum. You get those who are all in favour of direct instruction, but like a, a really kind of distorted view of direct instruction that, that is all about kind of chalk and talk and lecturing and loads of worksheets and fluency and drills and so on and then at the other end of the spectrum you get um, kind of the inquiry model where it's it's not about that at all and it's about the role of the teacher as the facilitator and so on. Now, you, you very rarely find teachers who actually subscribe to either of those extreme positions, but but generally teachers lie somewhere on the spectrum and, and there'd be no surprise to, to listeners of this podcast that I've certainly moved from the more teacher of this facilitator more towards the direct instruction model. Where, But I hope also I've managed to convey either in my books or, or when I speak that my kind of take on direct instruction is a very interactive student involved approach to, to approach to teaching but one, one thing that kind of I, I always struggle to, to to kind of get my head around whenever I'm lucky enough to engage in conversation with somebody who thinks slightly different to me is that is this equity of time and this was the, the thing I was, I was trying to get across when I was speaking to Dave I, I really like the idea of students discovering things for themselves, of students having those aha moments. Rob Easterway, when he was um, on the podcast a few years ago, talked about um, moments of ha, 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 and aha in lessons. And I think that was a really, really nice way of, of putting it. I want that. I want my students to, to have those wow moments. Um, and ultimately, I want my students to, to understand exactly why they're doing everything in mathematics. I think that's something that often gets lost in the discussions uh, between different teaching styles and so on. Ultimately, teachers all want the same thing, or in my experience, the vast majority of teachers all want the same thing. They want their students to enjoy mathematics, and above them, uh, everything else, they want them to understand the mathematics, not just 
be machines just regurgitating an algorithm that, that makes little or no sense to them. My, my just decisions over the last few years uh, that I've changed my mind on is is how I get my students to the point where the, where they understand it. And so I, I return to this issue of, of equity and in particular time. If, if I had all the time in the world, I think it would be a good approach to, to allow students this opportunity to discover things, to play around and so on and so forth. But but we're, but we're pushing it for time, as 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 we know, um, and for some students that is going to be a very time-consuming and ultimately frustrating process. So I've reached the conclusion, and it was it was an uncomfortable one for me um, at the start, maybe kind of five or six years ago, that sometimes it is better to simply come up with a well-planned, well-rehearsed explanation of of how to do something, followed up by some well-chosen uh, examples to do and deliver those examples in a really carefully considered way using my silent teacher approach, narration, show call and so on that I speak about and write about, followed up by some really carefully planned and sequenced um, practice questions, whether it be using intelligent practice or fluency practice and so on. And then that like the the efficiency of that approach in terms of time means that every student can get to the point where they're feeling really confident um, about the work that they're doing. And then that opens the door to then saying, okay, why does this work? And so on and so forth. So I'm I'm still wrangling with this, but but one thing that I've been really thinking about since speaking to Dave, um, and it's been, been in my head for a while, but as, as is often the case on the podcast, the guest really brings it to the forefront, is that perhaps the tasks are the key to this. Now, where I've really failed in the past is, and it's been completely my fault, is I've given students these unstructured kind of open-ended tasks, the ones that I really enjoy, enjoyed as a kid and enjoy now as, as a mathematician and really thrive upon. I've given them to my students in the hope that they'll discover something within their, perhaps their investigations, the old coursework style tasks, um, inquiry-based tasks and so on, hoping that my students would have these wow moments. And it's just been a real frustrating experience for, for all involved. And I've ended up having to just tell the students things at the end of it. Um, and like time has gone um, and nobody's happy and it's been terrible. But when you look at the kind of tasks that Dave uses, and I know I sound like a broken record here, but I go back to Dave and Tom's Practicing Mathematics book. They are, they're structured in a way that students are getting practice whilst doing them, but they have that opportunity to notice things. There's this idea of educating awareness. There's there's things going on there. They're like Colin Foster's mathematical etudes and what I try to do with like my Venn diagram activities, what, what fall in, in, under my categorization of purposeful practice tasks. So if you get the tasks right, then perhaps this isn't quite as big an issue, but I still go back to more often than not this this need for this, these carefully planned explanations, these carefully planned examples, these carefully, carefully sequenced practice questions to really help lay that solid foundation for students to develop that conceptual understanding. Uh, but anyway, I've not much more to add on that because it's, I, I was really happy with the conversation that I had with Dave. And also, you've heard me bang on about this time and time again. You're thinking, wrap it up. Come on, come on. So anyway, just two more things. Um, I, re I really like this notion of sub subordination for fluency. To when I, I messaged Tom Frankham to say, look, Dave's coming on the show. Um, I need some questions here. I need to give me a, give me a bit of help here because I'm out of my depth here. Uh, what's good things to ask him? And Tom uh, sent me a link to this uh, this notion of subordination for fluency. I'd heard Tom mention it at, at one of the previous maths comps. And it sounded so counterintuitive 
this this taking attention away from the process that, that you're essentially practicing to think about something else actually helps you develop that fluency in that process that your attention's away, away from. I'll need to think about this some more, you know, and I'll need to see this in action to be fully on board with it. But I like the idea of it. I like, I like counterintuitive things just generally. And, and that sounds right up my street, that one. So it's, it's fascinating that. And finally, a grid algebra. Now, it's real interesting. When I, when I was researching for, for the interview with Dave, when I was prepping for it, I'd obviously come across Dave's work on grid algebra. And then I looked looked it up because I'm thinking, wow, this sounds absolutely amazing. And then I thought, oh God, we got, you've got to pay for this and it's fairly expensive and so on and so forth. But then that news, and I only found out when I was speaking to Dave that, that it's going to be eventually made available for free so everyone can play around with this in the way that perhaps you might play around with some of Jonathan Hall's uh, virtual manipulatives on MathSpot or Anne and John's uh, structural variation grids and so on. For, for it to be one of those interactive activities that you can use just project it on the board and, and ask students some real probing questions or if students are lucky enough to have access to devices they can play around with them as well and discover, discover things and hypothesize and conjecture and so on it's, it's just wonderful it's, it's an absolutely fascinating resource what I'll do I'll put a link to um, some of Dave's work on grid algebra in the podcast show notes page just so you can get a sense of, of what's going on there and then as soon as it becomes freely available I'll put a link to that as well um, in the show notes so you can access it so uh, there you go, um, and that brings us to the end of a few things. Um, it brings us to the end of this research in action series. Oh, I'll tell you what, uh, never again, and I've said this to my wife, uh, never again am I doing um, 10 interviews in two days. It sounded a good idea. I like the idea of batching for, for efficiency, but I couldn't speak, I couldn't think, I couldn't do anything by, by the end of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure um, at my age these days whether I've, I've quite the energy to, to do that number of interviews, but I'm so pleased, I feel so privileged that um, all the guests have come on the show and that um, Colin has just picked a wonderful array of guests, speaking about so many different things. We've spoke about counting chickens uh, we spoke about the equal sign we spoke about cognitive load theory we spoke about doing phds textbook design just so much stuff I'm, I, i've been riveted by this and i know there'll be episodes that i continue to return to and dave is a very fitting uh, end of season finale to that uh, this also i'm recording this in december 2020 which marks the five-year anniversary um, of this podcast and we've done close to 150 episodes so um, that's quite nice. I, I, it's one of the if you. I think the stats are because I, I was really obsessed with um, with podcasts before I started my own. Listeners may know I used to do the Tesmaths podcast. So I, I re I really wanted to make a go of this. So I did a lot of research into into what makes podcasts effective and so on. And one, one of the stats I read is something ridiculous like. It's above 99%, um, so 99 point something percent of podcasts last fewer than three episodes. And the reason is because everybody enjoys the recording part, but it's the editing part that kills you. So I made a decision early on that essentially I wasn't going to do any editing because I'd be having these long form conversations. I always knew they were going to be long form. And I thought if I'm going through and taking out the ums and the ahs and all the all the bits where I'm not quite as sharp as I need to be and so on and so forth, then it's going to take me, if it's taking me like two and a half hours to record an episode and then seven hours to edit, it's not going to happen because nobody enjoys the editing part. So that's why there's very, very, very little editing that ever goes on into these episodes. You, you get them essentially as as, <laughs> as as I listen to them, as the conversation happened. But that's meant that I still enjoy doing this as a process and that's why we've, we've done so many episodes of these. So it felt like, um, because it's kind of the end of five years and also the end of 2020, which has been a, a real challenging year uh, for, for all concerned, 
I just thought it was just nice just to reflect for a moment and just think how lucky I am to have spoke to all these guests who have, have learned so much. It's it's this podcast that's led to um, my book. It's led to me being able to to be asked to do talks all around the world. It's it's also led to me being able to speak to some of my heroes. And I, I always go back to this. I'll, I'll all forever be grateful for, for Dylan William for coming on the show really early on. Whenever the podcast was really small, a couple of hundred listeners and so on, uh, I invited Dylan on, on the show. I, I didn't know Dylan very well at all um, at that stage. He said yes. There was no... Um, all, all he checked was that it was going to be freely available to people. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, of course, I'll come on the show. He came on. It was one of, it still remains the most listened to episode, Dylan's first appearance on the show. And as a result of that, everybody said yes. Um, there's, I've, I've, everybody I've asked, has, uh, we've eventually been able to make, uh, work it so they come on the show, whether it be Doug Lamarve, Daisy Christodoulou, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because once they've heard Dylan's been on the show, what? how are you going to say no? So I'll always be grateful for, for Dylan for helping this, this podcast grow. And also for you, the lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in in your thousands. That's why why I do these. Now, um, some of you may know I've had a fairly tough year this year. It sounds pathetic moaning about this because everyone's had a tough year. It's been horrendous. But I've I've really, really struggled this year because um, a couple of things have happened. Uh, primarily, obviously, uh, COVID's happened. So my decision to be on a secondment from school so I could travel around and, and visit lots of schools and so on hasn't proved to be this, the shrewdest one because obviously all my talks disappeared um, overnight. Essentially, they're all cancelled. I think maybe 60 or 70 events that I was working at were cancelled. And I found myself at home uh, for the first time, kind of seven nights a week. And all the challenges that that brings along to it. Um, oh, I was having to balance work with my wife was working at home. And we have our little boy, Isaac, um, who, when lockdown happened, was only just turned one. And obviously needs a lot of attention, demands a lot of attention. And I just couldn't do it. I felt like an absolute failure. And it was the one of the lowest points in my life, I think, uh, for about two or three months. Very, very dark thoughts going on in my head. Uh, I realised I was a crap father, not a particularly good husband. Uh, just everything was just, just go, going wrong. Um, but it's... Uh, uh, so I took a little break from the podcast and so on and so forth. And I'm still not feeling 100% um, because the other twist is, I don't know if I spoke about this on the show. God, this talk turned into a big confessional piece. And um, I think I had COVID. Uh, I know everybody says this, but I think I had it uh, fairly early on, maybe uh, January or February. I was doing a fair few international talks. You know, what? I might be patient zero for the UK here. I might have brought it across because um, on my birthday in January, I, I was actually uh, rushed to hospital with um, severe chest pains and breathing issues. And I came out in a, a full body rash and I was on a, uh, on um, oxygen and steroids and all this kind of stuff. But they, they just said it was a severe chest infection because nobody was really chatting COVID at that stage. But anyway, as a result, and you may hear this, you may hear this in my voice, this is why I'm mentioning it here, is that um, as, a, as a result of this, I've now got asthma or allegedly I've, I've got asthma. I'm now on, um, I'm on two inhalers that I take six times a day. And it's meant that, um, I'm out of breath when I walk upstairs. Um, I, I struggle sometimes to read to Isaacs. I can't catch my breath. My running that I was really getting into to help clear my head, um, I just really struggle. Um, I was doing half marathons um, like a couple of times a month. Now at the end of a 5K, like I'm, I'm having to sit down for about half an hour afterwards and, and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's really messed me up. 
so my health isn't <laughs> isn't great. I hope I, I hope whenever things go back to normal, I can I can get this fully diagnosed and get a face to face appointment and sort myself out. But the reason I mention this, I just want to apologise for. Uh, the fact that you're probably having to hear me do these kind of short breaths and rasping breaths throughout it and wheezing throughout the, the podcast in the last few months. I hadn't wanted to, to, to mention anything, so I'm a bit embarrassed by it, if, if I'm honest. But I'm going to... Um I'm going to take a little break from from the podcast, perhaps for a month or so, just so I can focus on having a bit of a bit of a rest, spend some more time with with Kate and Isaac, and and try and get back on top of things, so I can come back to the podcast uh, fresh. Anyway, apologies for that. Uh, it's funny, I get behind this mic in my office, and it, it all seems to seems to come out. But as I say, it just feels like a bit of a end of an era. This five years done, twenty twenty done, research and action series done. So uh, I'm on a bit of a wind down. So it's it's all just coming out. Uh, my my inhibitions are, are, are down. Anyway, uh, all that remains for me to do is once again thank uh, my lovely guest for this show, Dave, uh, Dave Hewitt. It's Colin Foster for putting this together. Um, all the guests that I've been lucky enough to speak to, uh, not just this year, but over the last five years. Uh, Podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you hear throughout every show. Oxford for sponsoring this uh, this series of podcasts. And the biggest thank you of all, and I genuinely, genuinely mean this, to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for, for keeping on tuning in. It's the only reason, well, not the only reason I do this. I do it selfishly, so I get to learn things myself, but it'd be hard to do this for 140-odd episodes if nobody was listening, apart from me and my wife, when when I force her to listen by just pressing play on the phone whenever she's she's downstairs. So thank you that other people are listening to these. I hope you find them useful. And fingers crossed, once I try and get back on top and get myself a, a bit in a bit bit more a bit more positive frame of mind i'll be back with some wonderful uh, other guests in 2021 anyway you take care of yourselves enjoy and be safe in what's going to be a very very weird christmas and new year and i'll look forward to speaking to you soon you take care of yourselves bye for now <laughs>